You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris O'Brien is still recovering. He's an award-winning filmmaker, courtesy of the folks who voted for him and the people who... <laughs> at the International UFO Congress had lots of fun there. Especially yeah. when Bryce Zabel started doing the Paracast and trying to upstage Chris O'Brien. Yeah. Which that's we won't not, let him do. It's not hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So, therefore, we... It was fun, though, Gene. It was fun. It was, it was fun. good seeing you again. I really do like the concept of being in the same room doing these shows. It just... It, I don't know. Doing this thing over Skype is okay, but, man, I'll... There's something about it. Be, uh, what it means is that elbow. every week you'd have to drive down here to Phoenix... Yeah, and you'd have to get reimbursement from the network. We'll have to give them a budget. The network has to give us a budget. You know, most talk shows have no budget, so they have to give us a budget so that we can take Chris down here to do shows. That's yeah. how it's going to work. But I was thinking here, just as we did that show, the attendance you were telling me is a little bit down from last year. It's not because of lack of interest in UFOs. It's the speaker lineup. Sure, the guests were not as compelling. We had some pretty good people there. But others were Stan Romanek. Yeah. Oh, well. What can you do? Like I told him, uh, you know, when they announced our film as winning the uh, the EBS, I mentioned in my acceptance speech that that you know I, I well I kind of told everybody that they should you know make sure and enjoy the the chicken buffet, but go go easy on the true believer Kool Aid. This was not rubber <laughs> chicken. Was it a pretty good chicken? No, it wasn't. I I wasn't that, that impressed. I I I expected better, but. But it was good. It was good enough. Well, at least, of course, you could feed your face there. Any yep. interesting anecdotes from the time that you roamed the highways and byways of that well, convention? Anything yeah, interesting? There, there was a few things came up. I, I spoke with this one gentleman, very, very bright guy, Menza Society, uh, bright, uh, smart. And he showed me some really interesting research that he had been doing uh, concerning the, uh, the Greystoke Mansion on the highest hill in Beverly Hills that I think was built in the 20s or 30s. And he was explaining to me uh, how it was actually built like a giant transmission device. Uh, really compelling information. He'd be a, a good potential guest uh, possibly for the Paracast with some of his work. Um, he's into sacred geometry and how particular building materials and designs can be used for interesting magical and te- technological purposes and it's where the uh the movie uh witches of eastwick was filmed in this mansion the movie with uh, jack nicholson Cher, michelle pfeiffer and i forget who else was in it they tried to but, make a uh, tv series of that and it flopped yeah okay now one other thing we had there we had a close encounter by the way <laughs> so to speak with oh, really with whitley streber Oh, <laughs> right. And, yeah. you know, I said... Snowball's Whitley, chance in hell. <laughs> yeah, snowball's chance in hell. We use this blue snowball mic on last week's show. That's why he yeah. keeps talking to us about the snowball's chance in hell. Anyway... Well, I was talking about getting Whitley on the show. Right, I mean, which is the same thing. So I asked Whitley, you know, and he starts ranting about, well, all these people attacking me in the forums again. I said, you know what? Our forums consist of believers, people in the middle... And skeptics. He said, well, that must reflect then your audience. I said, it's a fraction of our audience. Let's be honest. Probably 2% of our audience goes to the forums at forum.theparacast.com. Not because they're bad forums. They're one of the larger 
forms of paranormal discussion on the planet. The thing is here, most people don't have the time to go places like that. So they don't participate. But I said, look, you're getting a nationwide, worldwide audience. And unlike most paranormal shows, Chris is a real paranormal field investigator. I am a real broadcast journalist. We're going to be fair with you. We're not going to ask you softball questions, but we're not going to attack you. We're going to ask you questions. And he says, well, you know what? I finished doing interviews for my current book. Maybe when my next book is out. No. And he ran out <laughs> as fast as he could. He, you know, it's kind of like, if you remember, I told a story on this show on the Tech Night Out Live of a couple of encounters I had with the late Steve Jobs. The guy, of course, was co-founder of Apple, the famous tech guru and inventor. And I remember talking to him a couple of times. And when he got his fill of me, which would be very quick, of course, as most people just want to run away from me when they meet me the first time, he would continue to answer the question as he walked away as fast as he could. And I think Whitley Strieber must have remembered something or learned something from Steve Jobs. He's 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 a real strange fish. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I did a, a couple of book signings with him years ago, and I mentioned uh, that I had had a group signing in New Paltz uh, at one of the pivotal weekends that are mentioned in Communion. I, of course, I didn't find out about the correlation until years later, but uh, I think I've described the sighting uh, on the show, and I mentioned this to him, uh, and uh, he asked what the date was, and I gave him the date, and he. He literally turned on his heels and ran away from me, and, and th that was the last time I ever talked to him. And then uh, I see him at the show, and he goes, oh, no, we've never met. And I said, oh, yeah, we have. He's, he's an interesting fish. I, I don't know what to make of him. He's a very, very accomplished writer, incredibly good writer. but He shouldn't be so temperamental. I mean, you know, if his experiences are precisely as he says they are, okay, if he's telling us the truth, he should be happy and he's been in the media for years, to defend himself and to answer the question, not worry about the fact that I might ask him a tough question, because I will, or that our listeners will deliver questions that are tough, because they will, or Chris won't ask a tough question, because if what he says is true, if his experiences are genuine, he should understand that people are going to be skeptical, and they're going to want him to, by proof if he can provide it, or just the logic of his descriptions to answer the questions and the invitation still after him, but he shouldn't be afraid of this, you know, just going on there for a love fest for a couple of hours that might happen on some shows. It's not going to happen on the Paracast. Well, since what, 87, 88, he's had this uh, rabid, you know, fan base who just, you know, accept everything that he's written about his alleged experiences at face value. And that's obviously how he and, uh, and Anne prefer it. They like to be surrounded by the syncophants and the the worshippers, um, similar to what I was seeing around Stan Romanek. Uh, one thing that was a little irksome for me is uh, Bruce Maccabee. I hope, hopefully he's okay. Uh, it's unlike him to cancel at the last minute, but Bruce had to cancel. And instead of grabbing any number of very accomplished uh, speakers and researchers, investigators who were in, there at the conference. Uh, they quickly turned around and, and filled the slot with Stan Romanek and his wife, Lisa. And what's and unfortunate it here is you think here, this had to be a last-minute decision, we understand, but this is the opposite of what Bruce Maccabee would have done. 
totally the opposite. We have yeah. a really interesting show today because we're going to look at strange things, possibly ancient astronauts or godlike beings of the past. And you've assembled a guy here named Scott Allen Roberts. Chris, tell us. Well, Scott's a very interesting guy. I, I'm really not that familiar with his work uh, prior to this, but uh, he has a book out on the Nephilim, which I, I think is a very interesting, intriguing topic. Of course, the Nephilim were the uh, godlike giants that uh, existed uh, supposedly thousands of years ago and, of course, are mentioned in the Bible. And in Zechariah Sitchin's work, you'll find uh, mentioned. So I think the the historical aspect of this and how it was documented in some of the ancient texts uh, is is a very intriguing subject and I think one that our listeners will be fascinated with. And he has a magazine out called Intrepid, by the way. It's boldly going somewhere, and I guess we're going to have to find out where he's taking it and also about that book, which I've been looking at as we've been talking, The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim, The Untold Story of Fallen Angels. Wow. He's got quite a picture there. You know, you have this gentleman with the wings, and you have this woman who's rather... Attractive looking on the cover might be just enough reason to buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) Scott Allen Roberts coming up next. You're in the Paracast. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. You expect professional service from your doctor, your accountant, and even the girl who takes your morning coffee order. Why not from your domain registrar, too? Namecheap.com provides stellar service with no sneaky upselling. We offer more features and security options for your website than there are ways to order a latte. And new domains come with a WhoisGuard to protect your personal info. At Namecheap.com, you can get your domain for as low as $2.99. Now is a great time to get to know Namecheap.com. I-R-S, the three most dreaded letters of the alphabet. If you owe back taxes, have unfiled tax returns, are receiving threatening letters, or have IRS agents coming to your home or place of business, you need an experienced IRS agent fighting on your side. Call the Tax Relief Division of the Law Offices of Craig Zimmerman at 800-342-8068. Spearheaded by a former IRS agent, we know how to negotiate a reduction in the tax you owe, stop wage garnishments, lift bank levies, and negotiate an affordable repayment plan. With 17 years as a practicing attorney and an A-plus better business rating, we'll get the IRS off your back once and for all. In fact, recently, when an IRS employee had a tax problem, she called us. Stop being afraid and call right now for your free consultation at 800-342-8068. The phone call is free and there's no obligation, so call 800-342-8068. Again, that's 800-342-8068. Actual results based on individual client circumstances. What if pain could be reduced, ailments could be alleviated, physical and mental stress could be eased, and blood circulation increased, all by simply lying down? Introducing the original Biomat. 
The Biomat is an FDA-registered medical device that combines deep-penetrating infrared space-age technology and revitalizing negative ions with the incredible healing power of amethyst crystals. A Biomat can boost your immune system, relieve pain and stiffness, reduce stress and fatigue, and assist in detoxifying your body. Join the thousands of people reporting relief from chronic pain, fibromyalgia, arthritis, sports injuries, insomnia, and much more. Each Biomat comes with a lifetime trade-in and three-year warranty. Learn more at Bio dash mats.com spelled b-i-o dash m-a-t-s dot com or call 360-944-8692 that's 360-944-8692 visit bio-mats.com today and enhance your life with a biomat do you suffer from low functioning adrenal or thyroid did you know that mercury from your dental fillings comes off of your teeth both as a vapor and as particles into your body? Wherever mercury deposits in your body, it stops cells from functioning normally. Animal studies show that mercury causes kidney function to drop by 60%. Mercury deposited into your adrenals or thyroid will cause a corresponding drop in function. The number one method by which your body detoxifies itself of mercury is glutathione. The number one superfood that helps turn on all 10 trillion cells of your body to produce glutathione is non-denatured whey protein from grass fed cows. After investigating most high-end whey proteins on the market, only one is the most non-denatured, the most active, the most complete, and in our opinion, the most powerful in what nature originally put into the fresh raw whey. It is One World Whey. Call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. Or visit OneWorldWay.com. That's OneWorldWhey.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out at iTunes. On the PowerCast with Gene and Chris, we have Scott Allen Roberts. He has a new book called The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim, The Untold Story of Fallen Angels, Giants on the Earth. And as I was saying, Scott, before you joined us, I like the picture, especially of that woman on the cover. I think that makes ah, the book. thank you. Right. Was she based on a live person or just a drawing? Well, well th- that was a painting, and I-, I cannot pronounce the guy's name. He's one of the, uh, I guess, the older masters, but not as old as your as your Renaissance master, somebody in the late 1800s, can't remember his name. It's in the book. It's a French name. But uh, that is actually a picture of uh, Cupid running off with, oh, and I can't think of what her name is either. And it's a, I thought it was a great picture. It was, you know, the whole concept out there behind the uh, Nephilim for a lot of people is that it's, it's fallen angels and there was this angelic connection, which I don't think there is. But that's the why I put that picture on that on the cover. I thought it was very uh, evocative of what the topic is about. Let's go back into your involvement in the subject, how you started. What is your background? Well, my background is uh, conservative, fundamentalist, Baptist, Bible college and seminary. And uh, that's where all my training took place. And uh, in that setting, we were always taught, you know, the Bible is our only foundation for faith and practice. And while I don't want to step on anybody's toes or necessarily offend anybody's religious sensibilities, I found that that just didn't answer some of the questions I had. So in general, Um, you started out as what they call in the common vernacular, the religious right. 
Yes, religious right. As a matter of fact, some of my background even involved working for people who did work for the Moral Majority back in the, the early 1980s. Now, the Moral and, Majority, uh, was that the first Tea Party? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so, because I don't see the Tea Party as being as far religiously right as the Moral, as the moral Majority. I see them uh, in, a, in a different vein than that. I think you've got a lot of your religious right that wants to be involved with the Tea Party because they say, well, they uphold uh, you know, our, st- our certain standards. And I don't know why it is, but it seems like you see an awful lot of conservatives tend to that more religious right side. And I'm conservative, but I'm not part of the religious right. So I, I bristle at that notion a little bit myself. I understand. Uh, okay, so when you start considering the fact of physical beings, perhaps, that came here in yep. ancient times. Yes. Heresy or what? How did you get well caught up in this? I can tell you this. Uh, the, the reason I, I did a study on the Nephilim was I had questions about who they were. I always saw the passage in Genesis, and what I didn't know, and in the way it was never taught, was that it's really the preamble to the, the flood of Noah story in the book of Genesis. And so what I did with this book is I wanted to, to look at the theological slant and say, if I want to compare it to anything else that's out there, other theories that are out there, I've got to separate myself in a bit and look at it as part of the religious mythology out there of the flood stories, of the creation stories, and try to get down to some facts. And I say rather tongue-in-cheek, it's kind of like me saying, well, of course fairies exist because the leprechauns say so. I'm supporting the, the theology from within the theology to take a look at it and see what it's really saying. And once I got below the surface of the surface stories and the things that were taught in church and synagogue, things like that, I found a very different version of events starting to come out when you get into the Hebrew language and start tearing it apart a bit and saying, what's the subtext here? Is this a cover story for a different kind of an event? Is it just an allegory? Is it mythology? And, of course, you can't prove any of that because there's no way to bring any of this into, into scrutiny under some kind of scientific methodology. But the methodology that, that, that adheres is one that says there is so many cultural references to this kind of event that seem to cross-reference with this only with different names, different series of events, a crossover uh, uh, tie-in thread through this whole thing. She says something happened, and something happened big in human history, but it's hard to eradicate it from theology because it's housed in the theological histories of so many different cultures. Okay, the thing I always wonder about stories like this, you have similar stories in various sacred texts around the world, but we didn't have 24-7 cable you know, a couple of thousand years ago. So how did these stories get spread from one place to another, or did these advanced beings just go everywhere and talk to people? Well, here's something I even even poke a little fun at in my book. It's either either there was some huge spiritual religious symposium 7,000 years ago, and they all smoked the same peyote and all went back to their their various cultures with this story and said, we're just going to put our twist on it. Or, or there was an event or series of events that were commonplace around the world, and many different cultures experienced them. As for the flood account, which I'll reference that a lot because the Nephilim are really the preamble to the flood account in the Genesis passage, the Hebrew Bible, that story has over 600 different cultures around the world that, that date back into ancient times that have their version of those events. 
And like I say, the, the Hebrew version is Noah, but then you get into things like as, as outstanding as like the Gilgamesh epic and things like that. So you've got different casts of characters in all these different cultures that it'd be exhaustive to write a book about it. So I just named a few in, in, in my book. This is where you say there is a common thread while every different culture seems to have their own version of events. So did these beings appear to all these different peoples? I think you see it in some of the different cultures. Uh, one that's very outstanding for me, because of my own roots, is the Celtic culture. You've got the, the Tuatha de Danann, the children of Danu. Uh, they were the bright, shining, giant kings of heaven that came down and intermingled with humans and taught them knowledges and things. They are actually uh, synonymous with what became known as the elven folk, so if you think of your, uh, think into fiction, think of your uh, Tolkien type of elf, the elven folk, and you've got a picture of who the Tuatha de Danann were supposed to be, at least putting a quick visual to it. And they receded into the hollow hills eventually and became known as the elven. So this is one of the cultures that has a similar story to these giants. And they're even called in the Celtic tradition, they were called the, the bright shining ones, the shining kings of heaven, the Tuatha. And you start getting into even the Genesis passage, and you find that some of these characters are referred to as the bright shining ones. They relate to Psalm 82, which, which you have God talking to the divine council and calling them the bright shining princes of heaven. It, what you have to do with some of these stories, especially in the case, which, which is what I did, I went to the Hebrew Bible and dug out the stuff there and compared it to other things, you have to dig beneath the surface. You have to look at how it compares to other passages. You can't always just take, and sorry Christians and Jews out there, you just can't take the Bible at face value sometimes, just like anything else. You've got to dig and find out what it's really saying. Now, part of the problem in trying to interpret these sacred texts is that we're looking at English translations. And right. years ago, I knew of a fellow, Yonah Fortner, a Hebrew scholar who could read 20, 30 different languages. And he was able, obviously, to read as much as possible original texts to come up with his interpretations. So in doing this kind of study, how far could you go back? Did you have to bring in language experts to help you to find out what these things meant? We have Scott Allen Roberts joining us. The book is The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim with Gene and Chris. You're in Paracast. Of searching for great talk radio. Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. 
Have you ever seen a U.S. postage stamp featuring Abraham Lincoln, Ben Franklin, or George Washington? If you're into stamp collecting, you know it's a fun, affordable hobby. America's leading stamp dealer is the Mystic Stamp Company, and they want you to have their free 140-page color catalog. Go to mysticstampad.com, the website of the Mystic Stamp Company, serving stamp collectors since 1923. Mystic Stamp is well-known in the industry for its experience, superior customer service, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Go to mystic-stampad.com to request your free 140-page U.S. stamp color catalog packed with collecting tips, special offers, color photos, and over 4,600 available stamps. Call 800-433-7811 or go to mysticstampad.com. That's 800-433-7811 and ask for your free U.S. stamp catalog or mysticstampad.com. Mystic Stamp Company, America's leading stamp dealer. Don't answer it. If fear strikes your heart when the phone rings, knowing it may be another bill collector, it's time for you to call Zero Debt in 90 Days, 800-477-9256. Settlements, bankruptcy, and attorneys are not the answer and may end up costing you up to 10 times more than necessary. Listen, if you're already in debt, does it make sense to get buried in another payment plan? Zero Debt in 90 Days gets you out of debt in 90 days guaranteed without a payment plan and without attorneys or going to court. Get the fastest relief from debt on the planet when you call 800-477-9256. If you have debt with the IRS, credit cards, student loans, or a foreclosure, we can help at Zero Debt in 90 Days, and we are the only organization to provide written guarantees on the results. Go to ZeroDebtGuarantee.com. That's ZeroDebtGuarantee.com. Or call now for free information, 800-477-9256. That's 800-477-9256. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System system today complete with two black berkey elements for only 231 dollars and the berkey guy will ship your order free of charge with the purchase of a berkey light the berkey guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only 39.99 that's over 30 percent off the retail price call the berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653 that's 1-877-886-3653 or order online at goberkey.com that's goberkey.com today This is Jacques Vallée, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. On the Paracast with Gene and Chris, 120 miles separate, so that we don't scream at each other and pull each other's hair out, or hit each other with axes. That's how it works. <laughs> is that like a marriage made in heaven? Nah, nah, we get along just great. <laughs> yeah, he's my bro. Yeah, I saw the Daughters of Man and was inspired. That's how it goes. Right. Oh, yes. Scott Allen Roberts joining us. We're talking about his research process. Okay, so how did you take this study of biblical texts? Did you try to go back to the original language studies or what? 
Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, now you mentioned uh, your scholar that you, by by name, you said he he reads and writes uh, twenty three different languages. It's about twenty two more languages than I read or write, and that's probably so, about uh, twenty two and a half more than I do. But Yona, unfortunately, is no longer with us. <laughs> I sure wish he was because he would have been such a wonderful guest on the Paracast. But he left us before the show came to be. Ah. Uh, well, what I have done is refer to people like him. I will go, when I was in seminary and we had to write term papers and all that, and when I was in ministry and, and we were teaching or preaching and we wanted to relate to the original language, yeah, I took ancient Hebrew in seminary. I took ancient Greek. Uh, ask me today if I remember a lick of either of them, and I don't, because uh, I, I haven't used them much in the last 25 years. So I, I go to and I try to dig out the source points for people who have either talked about this and write about it from within a, uh, because it was from the Hebrew Bible, I wanted to go to Jewish scholars and I wanted to go to, to Hebrew scholars and Christianity as well. Michael Heiser is a guy that comes out as a name. I quote him a couple of times in my book. I looked at some of his research. I looked at some Jewish scholars. I got them quoted in my book. I didn't memorize their names. And by the way, when I'm doing these interviews, I think, man, I need to reread my book and familiarize myself with some of what I've written. Uh, I know just that to make feeling. Sure I, I'm, I'm covering all my points. But yeah, so I hailed to people who know the language better than I do. And I wrote a chapter about uh, Elohim. That was, by the way, one of the very first things that caused some of my questioning in my faith, or at least in my practice, was when I came across the name Elohim in the Old Testament. It's the name for God, one of the many names for God used. And in the Hebrew, it's Elohim, and it's used almost 3,000 times in the Old Testament. But never did I under have a full understanding of what that word meant, because when you parse it down in the Hebrew, it's just like the word Nephilim. They both have that him ending, which is, in the Hebrew, that is a plural suffix tacked onto a word to pluralize it. And so Elohim... El being the name of God, the E-L, uh, which, uh, by the way, hails back to the, the Sumerian prior to the Hebrew, you've got the word Elohim, which basically means in translation, God of many gods or God among many gods. It's a word that is singular and plural at the same time, depending on the context of the words used in the passage around it. And this is the stuff that and again, I say in my book, I said, your eyes could gloss over when we start talking about the etymology of ancient Hebrew language, but you've got to be impassioned about it because once you start learning this stuff, it's like opening the door in a dark room and letting some light in. When I found out Elohim meant something different than I thought it had, I had been taught that it meant, uh, it started opening up other doors because you see how Elohim relates to so many of the other characters that are involved in the Nephilim story and the backstory. Uh, yeah, going to Hebrew scholars, I have to do that because it's like uh, I could talk about lung cancer, but I'm not a doctor. So I'd have to refer to what doctors write about it to say anything intelligent about it. To me, if you're going to study a topic like this, you better dig a little bit and know what the hell you're talking about. And if you don't know it firsthand and you're not the scholar, you better refer to sources who do so you can back up some of your claims. Of course, I guess the big problem in doing this kind of research is to try to take the word set down by people we regard as amazingly primitive these days and try right. to interpret what they really meant, how their culture influenced those descriptions and translate them to the present day. That had to be really, really difficult. That's the hard part. That's even the hard part. If you go to church on Sunday, 
That's even the hard part in daily practical stuff that ministers try to pull out of the Bible. When the, the New Testament tells you that a woman shouldn't speak in church, and if she has a question, she has to go home and ask her husband. How does that fly in our churches nowadays? You have to look at it culturally. You have to look at the audience it was written to and the context. And, and you have to think how many divorces what? you'd have if oh women had God. to behave that way. And if I turn to my wife ever in church and say, hey, uh, 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 you ask me at home while you're cooking dinner. Uh, you know, I'd probably get a black eye. So, <laughs> oh boy, my wife swears yeah. like a Randy Sailor, so she would probably uh, add some nice blue language with it. My wife learned from her mother how <laughs> to speak proper. Her mother was just a great person. If you crossed her, or anyone crossed a member of her family, or even her family by marriage, she would use the proper words to put them in their place. Nice. Yes. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us. Okay, so we look at trying to interpret ancient cultures, what they saw. Now, is it possible there is nothing physical involved? They all were spiritual encounters of some sort. It's very possible. It's like I I, I say about all of this stuff. There is no proof for any of it. But I compare that to even our science of the day. Uh, My first chapter in the book is entitled Science Almighty. And the reason I do that is I want to dig into the scientific aspect, but say it's sometimes you've got to kick out the props of some of the things that you think you know, whether it be theology, religion, spirituality, skepticism, or science. You've got to kick some of those props out. Because while there is no way to prove that the Nephilim ever even existed, the same thing could be said. You extrapolate that thought over to the evolutionary ascendancy of Homo sapiens. Now, science will tell you that there's, there, there's a theory of evolution out there. Now, I'm not a creationist, but uh, I am also not a pure evolutionist because I say this. Evolutionary science takes as much exponential leaps of faith to make the connections as it does to say God exists. Uh, so we're all operating by a certain modicum of faith. If you have all these different stages of what science has identified as the ascendancy of human evolution, There is still to this day no DNA linkage between any of them. There is still no, they're still looking for the missing links. And the problem with that is that they put it forth as a solid science when in fact it's a science filled with gaps that take great exponential leaps of faith to fill in the holes. Well, the other possibility could be in the middle, which is that E.T. came here and he did some genetic engineering or it did some genetic engineering and here we are. That's something I mentioned, too, is that it's kind of, for me, a flip side of of the same coin. One side of the coin might say, it's all this creation spirituality, and this is all correct. Or you flip the coin over, and you say, now, this is not a new thought nowadays. It was new when I was a kid, growing up in the late 60s and the 70s, and that was that thought that, hmm, maybe ancient man only perceived as gods, demons, devils, angels, and all of those things in between – things that were nothing of the sort, but just non-human intelligences. But once again, you have no way to prove either of them happened. All we know is there's, we see these quote-unquote evidences. It's like this. You guys are involved in the paranormal as well. I have been as well. You can say to a skeptic or a scientist, I've got this mound of evidence of EVPs and things moving on my tape recorder or or my, my, my DVR and whatever, None of that is acceptable evidence to anybody who has a scientific or a skeptical mind because they they go by the, what is the skeptic's credo, you know, uh, extraordinary claims uh, require extraordinary evidences. And so anecdotal evidence to to a scientist or a skeptic isn't going to cut it. 
same thing with this. You can't use the scientific methodology, methodology and say to some non-human intelligence in a lab setting and say, okay, uh, you two start to uh, start procreating, and we're going to do this over and over again until we've proven our hypothesis. You can't do it. It's not there. So what you're using are these old records that, again, span many different cultures to say, hmm, now if everybody was writing about a version of this, does that does that bear some sort of scientific methodology in and of its own in that you can't prove it happened, but you can show that so many different cultures talked about the same thing, but they didn't talk about the same story. So that means they all had versions of the story. They all had versions of the event, which says there may have been a common event that they were all talking about or similar events that happened to them all. Yeah. And this is a, a cross-cultural uh, tradition as well. And we'll get into more sure, yeah. of that, that very salient aspect. We're talking to Scott Allen Roberts with Gene, with Chris. You're in the Paracast. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats, I can't even list them. Download now to see if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. That's what it sounds like when a burglar kicks in the door of a dark house that looks like no one is home. Don't let your home be the next target. Make it look like someone is home watching television with Fake TV. Fake TV is a small electronic device that makes the same light as a real television. So from outside, it looks like someone is home watching TV. Fake TV plugs in just like a lamp on a timer, but is far more convincing to burglars. Fake TV deters burglars, costs far less than an alarm, and is highly recommended by numerous police departments. Use it anytime you're away from home. To order your Fake TV for only $34.95, go to FakeTV.com. Or call 1-877-5-FAKE-TV. Each additional fake TV is only $29.95. So get one for you and one for a loved one for safety, security, and peace of mind for both of you. Call 877-5-FAKE-TV or go to FakeTV.com. FakeTV.com, the burglar deterrent. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Don't forget, CrossbreedHolsters.com. 
In a coming apart world, you need something to keep it tied together. That something is Atwood Rope, the highest quality rope made in the USA from exotic braids for military, rescue, arborists, shipyards, tow line, or boating. Quality rope at affordable prices you and your customers can depend on. Find a dealer or shop online at atwoodrope.net. Enter promo code RADIO to receive 100 feet of 550 paracord free with purchase. Atwood Rope, working to keep the world tied together. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. That bears repeating. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. And Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse is the key to digestive health. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic, strong enough to cleanse, gentle enough to use every day. Pro-EM-1 is dairy, wheat, and soy-free, contains all natural and certified organic ingredients, contains no preservatives or animal products, supports a healthy digestive and immune system, supports weight loss, improves absorption of food nutrients, aids in controlling yeast infections, is never freeze-dried, and uses three groups of live, viable, beneficial microbes to cleanse and remove toxins. Order Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terraganics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, Terraganics.com. Or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Pro-EM1, the raw probiotic. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Yeah, Scott Allen Roberts exploring... Ancient Advanced Beings with Gene and Chris in the Paracast. As we broke for that important interval, Chris started to frame a question. Chris? I was going to make the observation, Scotty, that uh, this is not only a Near Eastern or Western uh, tradition. Um, you find stories of giants and interbreeding with humans of some god godlike beings uh, all over the world. Uh, my good friend yeah. Clifford Mahoudi is a Zuni elder. And he's mentioned uh, uh, these types of details in some of their mythology. And, and I, I think it's indicative of, you know, when you look at so many different cultures coming up with a very similar take on a subject, it's, uh, it, the, the chances of this being coincidental, I think, are astronomical. There's got to be some sort of, of truth there at the core somewhere. It, it may not have survived intact through thousands of years, but it, it is an indication that, that – uh, you know, this is definitely worthy of study. And, uh, well, you know, the whole Nephilim thing, I, I, I don't think we've really uh, defined totally uh, what we're talking about. For some of our, our newer listeners, perhaps you should go in and give a little bit more details, especially sure. about the genetic part, part of this and, and the interbreeding with humans. Okay. Well, the, the source point for the word Nephilim, which, by the way, has become a word that's even that's even crossed over into pop culture. You see movies with Cuba Gooding Jr. about the Nephilim that they unfroze and things like that. Uh, so the, the the word has become synonymous with some kind of being that was one an off breeding or or a hybrid breeding with humans. The source point for the word itself, though, is the Hebrew Bible. It's the Book of Genesis. You can also find it in one of the apocryphal books, uh, Enoch, which I hail to a lot in my, in my research to establish the theology behind this. You also find it in the Book of Jubilees, the Book of Jasher, and uh, it's, they're even mentioned in the more recently, if you will, in the last 20 years, uncovered the Book of Giants that was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So one of the mistranslations of the word was that they were that, that Nephilim means giant. It doesn't. There's another word in the passage. 
You go to Genesis 6, and it talks about, and in those days the sons of God came down and intermingled with the daughters of men and had children by them. They were known as the Nephilim, and the heroes of old, and the men of renown. Now, by the way, that term, the men of renown, that phrase in the Hebrew is referring to the Giborim in Hebrew, in the, in the, the Hebrew sense, sense of what was going on there. And the Giborim were known as giants, mighty men of valor. And what you've also got here is something that looks like it's starting to talk about maybe some of our mythologies about the Greek gods and the pantheons of different gods hailed from these sources. The only problem is that Genesis was written long after many of these things existed in different cultures. So the Nephilim are the offspring of, according to Genesis, the sons of God, in the Hebrew, the Benet Elohim, who came down and intermingled with the daughters of human men and had children by them. And then it says, and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. Then it goes into talking about the mortality of man and the number of years he lived, and right directly into the story of Noah. So the connection is not made, in the English version anyway, it's not made very quickly, but there's this hint by the author of Genesis that there was a race that was bequeathed by the mixing of spirit beings of some kind and human women. In my settings where I grew up, we kind of hinted at this at the beginning, I think, uh, Gene, with your question. At the very beginning, when I learned this stuff in seminary, which was very slight, um, we were taught, well, this is obviously not referring to non-human beings. This has to do with the sons of the prophets or the sons of the wealthy who came down and intermingled with the, the women of the common folk in the villages. And I said, but why then does the Hebrew make a stark contrast between the Beneha Elohim and the daughters of Adam? They don't use the same term. They don't say that this was the sons of Adam, who were the upper classes or the schools of the prophet, intermingling with the daughters of Adam. They make a contrast between the two. And the purpose for the contrast is to create a stark difference between the two beings. But... The author of Genesis, who, by the way, I believe was Moses, and I write about that, and the tradition I think is pretty strong and there's good grounds for it, talks about uh, these beings almost as an offhand remark. It's almost like, oh, yeah, there were these Nephilim, and they were bequeathed by this and that, but now let's talk about the flood. And it's, it's almost an aside. Go to the book of Enoch, however, which is an apocryphal book. It's a book that was booted out of the canon of Scripture by one of Constantine's councils, started in the Council of Nicaea, because they could not decide that there was unanimity on whether or not Enoch was a scriptural book. And uh, uh, But by the way, <laughs> on the book of Enoch itself, it's quoted by many of the prophets in the Old Testament. Paul and Peter in the New Testament quote from the book of Enoch. Jesus himself quotes from the book of Enoch. Yet the Council of Nicaea and other councils following under Constantine decided it wasn't scripture, even though all those people used it and quoted from it. But in Enoch, you have the same exact passage. It starts with the same language as the Genesis 6 passage. Uh, but then it goes, instead of just four to five verses, it goes into chapter after chapter after chapter about these beings who the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, Enoch refers to them as the watchers who came down to the earth and intermingled with the daughters of men. As a matter of fact, in Enoch it says, they descended to the slopes of Mount Hermon, which is in northern Israel. It's today in the Golan Heights, straddling Syria and Lebanon. And it was there that there were 200 of them and they made a pact with each other to go into human women. It doesn't say that there were any women versions of them, female versions, and that they went into men too, just that they went into women. 
chose any ones that they wanted. They lusted after them. They cohabited with them. They made homes with them. They had offspring, and they taught humans the forbidden knowledges, the knowledges of things like cosmetics, the making of mirrors, the making of weapons, the suns, the signs of the sun, moon, and stars, and herbology, and things like that. And why those were forbidden, I don't know. But it sounds like they didn't have a prime directive. No prime directive. Okay. <laughs> or they violated the prime directive because well, uh, in their midst, you know, Shemyaza in the book of Enoch says, uh, he's one of these prefects of the 200. He says, wait a minute, if we do this, we're going to get our butts kicked. And they don't say by God. They just said, we're going to be in big trouble because we're not supposed to be doing this. And it says all the rest of them just pressed him and said, no, we're doing this anyway. You're either with us or you're without us. And so he joined them. He was their leader. And so he was basically saying, if you guys do this, it's my head on the block. This is the, uh, you know, if you read between the lines and want to put a little common vernacular in it, you're talking about ancient texts again. But in these passages, one of the, by the way, the big misnomers about these beings is for years they were thought to be fallen angels. But never in any of these passages do they use the word malach, malachi, for angels in the Hebrew. They're always referred to as the sons of God, the Elohim, and things like that. And this is where you can go to Psalm 82 and start seeing a correlation. Different passages in the Bible talk about a group called the Divine Council. And it says in there, and then we talked about Elohim. I'm going to interchange Elohim for where it says God in this passage. In Psalm 82, it says, And Elohim stood, singular, in the midst of the Elohim, same word, plural, and said to them, plural, You are all Elohim, you are the bright shining princes of heaven. Now you take that term, bright shining, and this takes you back even further than the account in Genesis 6, back to creation and the creation family, which just as the flood, you've got every different culture has its own version of a creation story and its own version of a creation couple or creation couples and their offspring being twins or multiple births. And there was always some kind of trickster character that came in and either impregnated the woman or impregnated the daughter of the first couple. And that bequeathed and started all the problems. This relates to Adam and Eve, the Genesis Garden of Eden story and the serpent in the garden. Who, by so the we're way, not just talking about a racial consciousness or worldwide allegory here. We're talking possibly of a physical event that yes. occurred that now, was widely reported. You can't prove that Adam and Eve ever existed. But if they did as two individuals, I think is irrelevant because you're never going to know for sure. But what it does talk about in all these cultures is a first family that had interactions with these beings. In the Genesis account, the point I was trying to make here, remember the bright shining ones. This is what the divine council are called. You have Nakosh, the word in the Hebrew for the serpent in the garden. The serpent character is called Nakosh. And by definition, it means trickster, bringer of knowledge, illuminator, bright shining one. And this is the one who tempted Eve in the garden. And the, the whole context of the whole thing of the garden, you've got to step back and look at it. Get out of the box. Look at it. While all the verbs and the action nouns in the Hebrew are all fairly neutral and generic terms, like he gave, he offered, he, she took, she ate, she gave to Adam, he took, he ate. But the whole context is one of, that's sexual in nature. And it talks about after the fall, when God's cursing everybody, uh, he says about the serpent, he says, and there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We'll get into more of this with Scott Allen Roberts, with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. 
America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, Ted Anderson announcing a great way to listen to radio on the telephone. By calling 760-569-7700, you'll be hearing GCNlive.com programs in seconds. Come to GCNlive.com, find your favorite host's dedicated phone number, and hear them 24-7. You heard me right, every show has a dedicated phone number. Stop by GCNlive.com and bookmark their number today. And again, that's 760-569-7700. We the People Grow Cotton, Weave Fabric, Engrave Ink, Embed Strips and Fibers to protect from counterfeit and carding to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. With Gene and Chris in the Paracast, Scott Allen Roberts is talking about things that happened in ancient times. So can we interpret this as Earth being visited by E.T., E.T. doing something, whether violating the Prime Directive or following up on a civilization that was seated by them, manipulating our past. And then the question is about the trickster. Do we think of maybe there's another political faction there It doesn't agree with the prevailing wisdom, and they came out and they tried to change things? I think the answer to the first question, maybe. Because once again, we don't know for sure. There's no way to prove any of this actually happened. All you've got, again, is all these different texts that talk about similar events. So something I put forward in my book, I, I, at the time I wrote this, I said, you know, the jury is still out for me on the whole ancient alien impregnation DNA manipulation thing. I said, I, I, I've not studied it enough. I'm not thorough on that topic. I see a lot of the evidences that are put forward. So let's say this from a theological standpoint, you can look at this and say it happened this way or It may have happened this way. It may have been ancient mankind extrapolating uh, spiritual and divine terms and putting them on these beings. And it wasn't Um, just a science fiction novel. Wasn't just a science fiction novel, did you say? Yeah, it wasn't just a science fiction novel. They didn't write science fiction in those days, did they? No. As a matter of fact, you know, I have a problem with the notion that skeptics and scientists and atheists and all will say, well, that's just religious texts. You, You know, it's a book of faith. Well, you know what? Uh, history and religion were not separated the way we separate them now. When we say that, we're thinking within our cultural context. We're thinking within our society here in the United States. We Separation of church and state, which is now a big argument exactly. in the political world. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's, that's hot today with some of the candidates that are out there right now. Again, and it's hot in every issue. The problem with that is when we view ancient writings through the filter of what we believe or how we act nowadays or the way our society believes, we are forgetting the context that those passages were all written in. These were not meant to be, oh, here is your book of faith, by the way, which is, by the way, separate from your your books of the law and your books of your history and 
and so on, they weren't separated back then. The big question is, were they right? We don't know. There's no way to know for sure. That's why this is still a curiosity. This is the stuff that draws our attention because there's something there that's either encoded or it's skipped over or we don't see its import because we are not part of that society that saw and viewed things the way they saw and viewed them. So this whole topic, and, and I'm speaking from within the Hebrew Bible because this is where I, where I did most of my study and research for this book, you've got a society that was a, a, a theocratic society. They believed that God ruled them, and their writers and their leaders all tried to establish this. I talked about Moses earlier. I have a chapter in the book called uh, Moses, the Pharaoh God of Israel. Uh, if you start digging historically, and this is, just, this is by way of illustration of this very same point, we can say Moses and everybody goes, kind of, eh, you know, how do we know Moses really wrote that? And to me, I, I come back and I say, ah, Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey? How do we know that? We don't know Homer really existed. We don't know like, that, for example, Shakespeare wrote his plays. Yeah, and by the way, I just watched the movie Anonymous. I don't know if I agree with it all. I'm, I love Shakespeare, and I consider myself a pseudo-Shakespeare scholar, and I've always liked Shakespeare, and I believe he wrote most of his works. But there are people who believe even as, as, as early as 400 years ago, they don't know if the guy wrote all his own stuff. Let me raise that question here, though. And that is here, we have all these ancient texts, and obviously there had to be a committee of people who would take this stuff, and they'd edit it, possibly centuries after the events occurred, and then decide whether to include them or not. You have this, we call them today an editorial committee. They would make final decisions on what you could read. So we don't know how much they manipulated what you see there and how it changed from the original reports, do you? No, we don't. Uh, as a matter of fact, for this book, I talked to a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. John Ward. He is an archaeologist, anthropologist on the ground in Luxor for about the last 10 years. And he does a lot of study. And I was asking him about Moses and the Exodus and all of that. And he has a different version than I believe. Uh, I dated Moses in this book uh, for a certain reason. I wanted to establish what he would have experienced as an Egyptian, growing up for the first 40 years of his life, if the Bible is, is to be believed on that story, um, uh, what did he experience? What did he bring to the table when he mentioned the Nephilim? And why did he treat them and handle them the way he did? And there is a, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it establishes this point. You can look at the Bible, and in 1 Kings 6, verse 1, it talks about the establishment or the dedication of, the, of Temple 1 in Jerusalem. It's known as Temple One. It's Solomon's Temple. Now, there's disputes over whether even Solomon existed or not, but they can't dispute the Temple because there's archaeological and historical evidence for Temple One. And all of your scholars, be they biblical scholars or be they secular scholars, they will agree on one thing. The Temple in Jerusalem, Temple One, was established and dedicated right around 966 B.C., give or take four to six years in either direction, depending on what you're looking at. Now, in that text in 1 Kings, it says, and in the 480th year after the first Passover, the exodus under Moses, the coming out of Israel uh, of Egypt to the children of Israel, Solomon dedicated his temple. So you've got, if you do your math, you roughly get 1446 B.C. as the date of the exodus. Then you start doing your math. If Moses was indeed 80 years old when he came back and led the exodus, uh, you go back 40 years, 
and then another 40 years to his birth. You get right around 1526 B.C., and you start looking at the pharaohs. Pharaoh Tutmosis I, Tutmosis II, Tutmosis III. Uh, the woman that uh, I think raised Moses was a woman by the name of Hatshepsut, who was the daughter of the pharaoh at the time. And you start digging out all these different facts historically, and you can say, this is a religious book about Moses, and Moses, by the way, was not real big on establishing dates. He didn't say, and in this year, by the Hebrew calendar, you know, I did this. He just, and he doesn't even give the names of the kings. He just says, the pharaoh, pharaoh's daughter, this guy, that guy. So to him, it wasn't an important thing. What was important to him was that he was establishing his leadership over Israel. And I believe that Moses was about as Egyptian as an Egyptian can be. If he was raised in the palace of 18th Dynasty Egypt for the first 40 years of his life, this is what he was, and this is what he brought to the table. So he was a politician. He was a politician. Okay, and now here's he what I worry about also about ancient texts. And this is a, something I've said on the Paracast from time to time. We cannot agree with 24-7 cable TV what happened three hours ago in right. another state or what a politician said and what he meant. We can't agree on that. We argue over that point, and now we're trying to take something written a couple of thousand years ago, trying to right. interpret stuff that happened hundreds of years earlier. How do we know what's accurate and what isn't? I think the beauty of going to ancient texts rather than CNN, NBC, CNBC and all those places is that nowadays you've got a million different sources. Back then, there was the simplicity of a simple history being written. Now, was there controversy? Hell yeah. You look at the New Testament. You had Peter, the great fisherman, you know, the, the, the disciple of Jesus, uh, who they say traditionally was the guy who established the Roman Catholic Church. Then you've got Paul, the apostle, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, the apologist for establishing the Christian faith. These two guys were at odds with each other right from the get-go. So from the very beginning of the Christian faith, you had the first big church schism was between two of the huge leaders of the Christian faith. They couldn't agree on was salvation open to the Jews or was it closed to the Jews and no, no Gentiles allowed, you know, things like that. And, they, and Paul even writes about it in his books, you know, and Peter and I got into a big, big fisticuff about this. All that just illustrating the fact that even back then, in the establishment of these things, you had people fighting over what it meant and who it was for. So, yeah, all of these ancient writings, you look back at stuff that Moses wrote and you say, how do we know that's what really happened? Well, I don't think we do. I think you have to weed out the history. This is where science, I think, and skepticism are very handy tools. And very sophisticated guesswork, I suppose. Scott Allen Roberts joining us with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. 
You expect professional service from your doctor, your accountant, and even the girl who takes your morning coffee order. Why not from your domain registrar, too? Namecheap.com provides stellar service with no sneaky upselling. We offer more features and security options for your website than there are ways to order a latte. And new domains come with a WhoisGuard to protect your personal info. At Namecheap.com, you can get your domain for as low as $2.99. Now is a great time to get to know Namecheap.com. IRS, the three most dreaded letters of the alphabet. If you owe back taxes, have unfiled tax returns, are receiving threatening letters, or have IRS agents coming to your home or place of business, you need an experienced IRS agent fighting on your side. Call the Tax Relief Division of the Law Offices of Craig Zimmerman at 800-342-8068. Spearheaded by a former IRS agent, we know how to negotiate a reduction in the tax you owe, stop wage garnishments, lift bank levies, and negotiate an affordable repayment plan plan. With 17 years as a practicing attorney and an A-plus better business rating, we'll get the IRS off your back once and for all. In fact, recently, when an IRS employee had a tax problem, she called us. Stop being afraid and call right now for your free consultation at 800-342-8068. The phone call is free and there's no obligation, so call 800-342-8068. Again, that's 800-342-8068. Actual results based on individual client circumstances. What if pain could be reduced, ailments could be alleviated, physical and mental stress could be eased, and blood circulation increased, all by simply lying down? Introducing the original Biomat. The Biomat is an FDA-registered medical device that combines deep, penetrating infrared space-age technology and revitalizing negative ions with the incredible healing power of amethyst crystals. A Biomat can boost your immune system, relieve pain and stiffness, reduce stress and fatigue, and assist in detoxifying your body. Join the thousands of people reporting relief from chronic pain, fibromyalgia, arthritis, sports injuries, insomnia, and much more. Each Biomat comes with a lifetime trade-in and three-year warranty. Learn more at bio-mats.com, spelled B-I-O-M-A-T-S.com. Or call 360-944-8692. That's 360-944-8692. Visit bio-mats.com today and enhance your life with a Biomat. Do you suffer from low-functioning adrenal or thyroid? Did you know that mercury from your dental fillings comes off of your teeth both as a vapor and as particles into your body? Wherever mercury deposits in your body, it stops cells from functioning normally. Animal studies show that mercury causes kidney function to drop by 60%. Mercury deposited into your adrenals or thyroid will cause a corresponding drop in function. The number one method by which your body detoxifies itself of mercury is glutathione. The number one superfood that helps turn on all 10 trillion cells of your body to produce glutathione is non-denatured whey protein from grass-fed cows. After investigating most high-end whey proteins on the market, only one is the most non-denatured, the most active, the most complete, and in our opinion, the most powerful in what nature originally put into the fresh raw whey. It is One World Whey. Call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. Or visit OneWorldWay.com. That's OneWorldWhey.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. 
or check us out at iTunes. Scott Allen Roberts joining us. We're checking ancient history, and we're trying to ferret out the facts from the fiction, from the fancy, from the political agendas. I guess it's difficult. I guess in the end, what you have to do is make a good guess. Isn't that right? That's pretty much it. You're making educated guesses. And I think, you know, scientists will bristle at that, but I think that's what we do in science. There are some things we can establish. We can establish earthly things pretty easily. We know what oxygen is made out of. That's pretty established. Uh, Where it came from and how it came to be, we can hypothesize. You start getting into these realms that are what I would call the whack fringe of normal, and you start getting the big questions, and you start, this is why I think the scientific community eschews this kind of stuff. They don't want to be part of it. Okay, let's leave that to the churches to figure out. We don't want to bother, but I'm going to have another question here because we've touched on it for almost half the show now, and that is the flood, Noah, all this stuff. We assume then this was some kind of worldwide cataclysm that maybe generated all this chatter, all this literature? Well, yes, in short. To start digging into it, we were always taught in my theological circles that it was a universal flood, you know, that the flood covered all the highest mountain peaks, and then uh, with this ark that Noah built, it came to rest as the waters receded in the mountains of Urartu, or or Ararat. Uh, It never says Mount Ararat. It says the mountains of Urartu. And, of course, there's little bits and pieces of evidence you can find. Just, uh, I'm going to make that analogy again, too, to like the paranormal. We get little bits and pieces of things that we can start to build a case, but it doesn't really prove anything for anybody that's at least of a scientific mind. So there's little bits and pieces you can put together about the flood and Noah and things like that. Like that. What you do know is geologically speaking, there was some great catastrophic flood that covered the earth. Now they don't know was this a big flood? Or was this the receding of the Ice Age? Was this the a reason, like, like the Persian Gulf right now? They say down near uh, the base of the, or the, I guess, the northwest of the Persian Gulf, where you find uh, the big cities in, in Iraq, that that part of the Persian Gulf was once dry land. Then miles out into the Persian Gulf where they can find settlements and things. As a matter of fact, this is one of the places where they, they postulate Eden existed, and it's now buried in that, the, the waters of the Persian Gulf. So you've got all kinds of things that you can look at and say, I can, I can surmise that this happened this way, or I can guess, educated guesswork that this happened this way, but you can't base it strictly in theology. You've got to look at the theology and filter it through science, filter it through history, filter it through geology. Did a major flood take place in the Mesopotamian Euphrates River Valley? The, the river valley, the Tigris and Euphrates? Yeah. There's a lot of evidence that that, that that happened there. Was it any more universal than that? We don't know for sure. It said it covered all the world. Did that mean all the known world? Did that mean all of the earth, the globe, the parts of the globe they didn't even know about? I don't know. I don't well, know. We, we do have traditions in, in the oral tradition of some, some of our indigenous cultures around the world. They all share uh, similar versions of the flood myth. And and you've, you've brought up a, an interesting part of the world, and of course, uh, anytime you start talking about Iran, Iraq, and that area, you get into the ancient Mesopotamian cultures between the Tigris and Euphrates, which brings us to our dear departed uh, Zechariah Sitchin. Zechariah Sitchin has an interesting take on the Nephilim, and, and he ties them to this Planet X uh, Nibiru. 
And uh, where do you come down on Sitchin's work uh, in regards um, to... Let me tell you this, to be very honest. I have avoided reading Sitchin's work as I've been doing my study on this because, first of all, there, there's, there are things that I've read about Sitchin's work, and there are portions of Sitchin's work I've read for the purpose of studying what he had to say about certain things. I found that without condemning the man outright, which I don't do, He's obviously put a lot of time and research into his work, or did, I should say. There were mistranslations of some of the ancient Sumerian language that he used. And uh, you'll find this in Michael Heiser's work. Uh, you know, what's his big website? Sitchiniswrong.com or something like that. And uh, he takes him to task because he said Sitchin was not a Hebrew scholar or an ancient linguist. But he went in like I'm doing. He's going in and relying on other people's study. And for me, I have to pick and choose who I think is the guy that's translating that stuff the best. I like Heiser because he's got no bones approach about it. He says, look, this is what the language says and this is what it means. Sitchin was trying to squeeze some things to fit into his theory. And his theory is not a bad theory. It's just like any of this other stuff, though. There's no way to prove it. And so what I found about his work in general without having read it I would say Sitchin puts forth a theory of how he thinks this all took place and who he thinks these beings are. But if he's heavily relying on his theories of Nibiru, his theories of a race coming to enslave humanity, and he builds that whole thing about Eden, the Eden area. He builds his case with the Anunnaki. He builds his case with the ancient Sumerian culture. And I can see where he pulls his, his facts, quote, quote from, but are his conclusions correct? I don't know for sure. Maybe he is right on the mark. But when he mistranslates a few words in there and kind of squeezes them to fit, it's not that they don't fit. It's that he kind of squeezes them a bit. In um, what respect they, does he do that? Want to... Scott. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sure. Scott, in what respect does he twist or mistranslate things? Well, it's one uh, word in particular that he makes a real point of, of emphasizing uh, in the 12th planet, and, and that's the word Shem which he retranslated to mean rocket. That was the biggie. Uh, are there other ones? Right. Uh, well, like, like the land of, of Sumer. Uh, he translates that as the land of the watchers. Now, he might not be totally off on that, but that's not a direct translation of the word. That's his extrapolation of his theories brought into that. This is because this and this and this mean this. This has got to mean this. That's kind of what he's doing in some of his translation work. And I don't think his translation work is the hinge pin to either disassemble him or to lend him credence. I'm just saying that I don't think his scholarship on some of the language that he used was as thorough as it could have been. And if it was, he may have had to stretch his theories a little bit more than he does. So like you say, with the word Shem meaning rocket, that's something that that's a stretch for me because I, I don't think they knew what a rocket was. And Shem wasn't a word for rocket, so uh, it was. A, it might have been a word for something that they that you could extrapolate a meaning and say, well, they must have thought it meant this. Okay, I'll ask uh, you that question, Scotty, and that is, okay, if you wanted to describe a rocket twenty five hundred years ago, how would you do it? I might say a wheel within a wheel within a wheel. I don't know. Okay, um, how would you describe a rocket? You look at all the the talk of 
uh, of the presence of God that would come down, uh, the, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. I think what you've got there is you've got people that were not that technologically advanced trying to describe things that may have been much more technologically advanced than we can even describe. So I think you've got a lot of stuff in there that it's way open for interpretation because we don't know exactly what they saw. Uh, all we can do is say, this doesn't sound like this. And if you take the measurements or, or the way this thing works, especially the Ezekiel thing, uh, the wheel within a wheel within a wheel, and the, uh, you can start looking at the way this thing is described and say, wait, that sounds like 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 a gyroscope. That sounds like this. That sounds like that. That it, sounds it, like Alan. a UFO, for example. Scott Allen Roberts like joining us with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Ray Perkins a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockaways. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack. Of the Rockaway, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Have you ever seen a U.S. postage stamp featuring Abraham Lincoln, Ben Franklin, or George Washington? If you're into stamp collecting, you know it's a fun, affordable hobby. America's leading stamp dealer is the Mystic Stamp Company, and they want you to have their free 140-page color catalog. Go to mysticstampad.com, the website of the Mystic Stamp Company, serving stamp collectors since 1923. Mystic Stamp is well-known in the industry for its experience, superior customer service, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Go to mystic-stamp-ad.com to request your free 140-page U.S. stamp color catalog, packed with collecting tips, special offers, color photos, and over 4,600 available stamps. Call 800-433-7811 or go to mysticstampad.com. That's 800-433-7811 and ask for your free U.S. stamp catalog or mysticstampad.com. Mystic Stamp Company, America's leading stamp dealer. Don't answer it. If fear strikes your heart when the phone rings, knowing it may be another bill collector, it's time for you to call Zero Debt in 90 Days. 800-477-9256. Settlements, bankruptcy, and attorneys are not the answer and may end up costing you up to 10 times more than necessary. Listen, if you're already in debt, does it make sense to get buried in another payment plan? Zero Debt in 90 Days gets you out of debt in 90 days guaranteed without a payment plan and without attorneys or going to court. Get the fastest relief from debt on the planet 
debt when you call 800-477-9256. If you have debt with the IRS, credit cards, student loans, or a foreclosure, we can help at zero debt in 90 days, and we are the only organization to provide written guarantees on the results. Go to ZeroDebtGuarantee.com. That's ZeroDebtGuarantee.com. Or call now for free information, 800-477-9256. That's 800-477-9256. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years in serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231 and the Berkey guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey light, the Berkey guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only $39.99. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653. That's 1-877-886-3653 or order online at goberkey.com. That's goberkey.com today. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. With Gene and Chris on the Paracast with Scott Allen Roberts, trying to make sense of ancient history about varying interpretations, trying to figure out what happened and whether E.T. came here and E.T. what intermingled with us, E.T. Found the daughters of man fair. Yeah. Now, the other thing, of course, is that if there was this sort of flood, would it be a catastrophic weather event? Would it be a typhoon or would it be some sort of global catastrophe? Can we unearth that, Scotty? What we, what we have found, and again, what we have surmised, at least within theology, uh, it, it says it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, that's the story of the flood that we all took from Sunday school. Uh, what we don't always focus on is the other little tidbits it says about this flood. It says, it says, and the window. It says it rained, and it said also that the windows of heaven were opened. It said also the fountains of the deep were broken open. And uh, I remember when I was in uh, a Baptist youth group as a kid, we were touring some big cave down south here somewhere, and. Uh, um, yeah, our youth pastor was saying, now see, this is an obvious, obvious remnant of the fountains of the deep having been broken open. Now, that's what he said. Uh, he didn't give us any geological facts about that. But when you look at the story of Genesis, just like everything in Genesis that talks about these stories that I would collectively call creation myths, flood myths, not to, again, offend anybody's religious sensibilities, but let's put it all in the camp of the great mythos of all these things— You've got certain things that are said in Genesis that are obviously deeper than what they say on the surface. And you can find that by just the way Moses treated historical characters. Uh, He doesn't get into it, Uh, but he says things poetically. He says things metaphorically. Uh, He says things in in encoded, allegorical types of messages. And so this flood, if it was a catastrophic flood, According to this, uh, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, but they were on the ark for another 
I think it was a total of 120 days before the waters receded enough to come out. Is this something that is a poetic language talking about the receding of ice age, uh, of, of glaciers? Is it, is it a mixture of floodplains over flooding, of great rains, uh, of a great flood period? Uh, we don't know for sure. That's the problem is that all these cultures speak of a flood. Even here in, in the United States, our Native American cultures have their stories of floods, but they also didn't live here back then. They're carrying these stories from their ancestors who migrated here from other parts of the world. So these great, some of the Native Americans might take exception. Uh, I know yeah, the Zuni yeah, and Hopi I, do. And I know you, you'll talk to the Lakota, too, and say, you know, the, the Black Hills are the center of the earth, and this is where the people have always been. And Which, by the way, there's a great story I mentioned from the Lakota about creation and Adam and Eve and the, and the trickster and so on. They've got their own version of that. Iktopi is their trickster character. But they all have these versions. The problem we all have, guys, is that you don't know which one is true. And are they all true, just variations of the same thing? Uh, you can say geologically, uh, geologists have proven that you know even the Rocky Mountains were at one time underwater. But is that pre- uh, upsurge of tectonic plates, and uh, it was once under the ocean, and that's why you can find seashells on the top of the mountains in the Rockies. Or is it uh, and sea sediment, fossilized sea sediment? Did that come from the fact that uh, this was prior to the the, the tectonic plates shifting and the the, uh, the separation of the continent, the continental drift? I don't know. Or is it referring to a great flood? The thing is, you can study all this stuff out. And never come up with the with the answer that says conclusively, oh yeah, it was one big catastrophic flood that happened over a 120 day period. There's just no way to prove that. Wouldn't there be some archaeological evidence that one can unearth? Sure, there's all kinds of evidence. You know, when they find uh, uh, complete villages that are submerged in in lakes and submerged in oceans that date back thousands of years, uh, they even look at Gobekli Tepe, which, by the way, the uh, I probably say that a lot, by the way. I don't know why. It's a habit of phrase. But uh, the uh, Sumerian culture was once thought to be the oldest culture on the face of the earth, the civilization, dating back to 45 to 4800 B.C. That's where we have our first cuneiform writing and the first uh, advance of civilization, so to speak. Yet they have dated now Gobekli Tepe in the last few years back to 12,000 B.C., another 8,000 years, 7,500 years further back. And this is where they found all those circular temples, this series of circular temples, all meticulously buried in the dirt, and earmarks of, of having been buried by hand, not buried by silt uh, and erosion and things like that. And they found them in perfect form, and on all these temples are all these great carvings of humans on these monoliths and animals, some animals unrecognizable. And so the question is, is this something that relates back to the flood or pre-flood? Uh, we don't know. We don't know for sure. And it's it's trying to grab all this stuff. You can look at history, archaeology, anthropology, but then you got to say it, it all inevitably leads back to somebody saying, how does this tie into these biblical events and these great religious events that we talk about? It's still on the cusp of everybody's tongue, even if they don't believe it. You know, this, this, this proves there was a great flood or this doesn't prove that there was a great flood. Things like that. So uh, all you can do is look at this stuff, and you got You start tying the bits and pieces together, as opposed to say, I have this thread of great facts that proves this and this and this happened. You just don't. 
So in the end, what do you really do here? How do you find out what really happened then? We have so many fascinating possibilities, and we're going to cover more as we proceed, especially the fall of the Nephilim, what that means. How can we go about proving any of this? Um, I think what you do, and this is what I have done, is I say, I came out of a faith that believed all this stuff carte blanche. And so part of my starting point in all of this was saying, I want to know if this stuff is real, so I'm going to dig a little bit. And what I have done with this book is just dig into the theology behind it all and say, look, the theology starts to make sense. And when you can start making sense of the theology and say there's a bigger picture here than we were presented, even in our synagogues and our churches, uh, if that bigger picture starts to materialize, you can say, now maybe that means there's a much bigger picture scientifically. Uh, When I start to relate it to ancient aliens or UFOs or ancient uh, uh, star uh, civilizations seeding ours and manipulating our DNA, that is just a version of events. It's a version to explain it. And something I want to be very careful when I do this to not do is this, and that is say, I just want to disprove that the Bible was true or that religion uh, is true. I want to find a different explanation. I think that's the mistake a lot of people make, and it's made on both sides of the camp. You've got some people that will say, I want to prove that Jehovah is God and that all these events of the Bible are true, and so they filter everything through that. And if the facts don't fit, they say something's missing here because we just don't have all the facts, but I know it's exactly as the Bible said. The other side of the coin is saying, I don't believe God existed at all. And I believe man made all this stuff up, so how do we make these things fit to make sure that we show that it has nothing to do with God and religion? And I think this is the the rock and the hard place we're caught between with this. As much as I can theorize, or anybody else, the hundreds of books that have been written about the Nephilim before I wrote my book, uh, I'm just throwing another apple on the cart to say, this is my understanding of this passage and how it works theologically. And when you set up the whole picture, you can see a huge theological picture which says there's something to this story. Now I can take that and I can move it out into the rest of the world and say, how does it compare to everything else out there? How does it compare to our geology? How does it compare to our science? Do these things actually fit? And then the big questions left are, whatever happened, if it was a god that was involved or if it was a race from somewhere else that's involved, They're both things we have no way to know for sure that they actually happen other than our scant evidences. And so we have to, it's almost like you have to choose a side and say, I'm going to be on this side and say that I think it's this, and I'm going to start filtering all my information through this side. And uh, uh, I think your, your really honest people on either side of this coin are going to be people that say, I don't know which one it was. And I'll tell you what, we'll continue to explore what might have happened with Scott Allen Roberts. With Gene and Chris, you're in the Paracast. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. 
Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs. Convert from so many formats, I can't even list them. Download now to see if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. That's what it sounds like when a burglar kicks in the door of a dark house that looks like no one is home. Don't let your home be the next target. Make it look like someone is home watching television with Fake TV. Fake TV is a small electronic device that makes the same light as a real television. So from outside, it looks like someone is home watching TV. Fake TV plugs in just like a lamp on a timer, but is far more convincing to burglars. Fake TV deters burglars, costs far less than an alarm, and is highly recommended by numerous police departments. Use it anytime you're away from home. To order your Fake TV for only $34.95, go to FakeTV.com. Or call 1-877-5-FAKE-TV. Each additional fake TV is only $29.95. So get one for you and one for a loved one for safety, security, and peace of mind for both of you. Call 877-5-FAKE-TV or go to FakeTV.com. FakeTV.com, the burglar deterrent. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Don't forget, CrossbreedHolsters.com. In a coming-apart world, you need something to keep it tied together. That something is Atwood Rope, the highest quality rope made in the USA from exotic braids for military, rescue, arborists, shipyards, tow line, or boating. Quality rope at affordable prices you and your customers can depend on. Find a dealer or shop online at atwoodrope.net. Enter promo code RADIO to receive 100 feet of 550 paracord free with purchase. Atwood Rope, working to keep the world tied together. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. That bears repeating. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. And Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse is the key to digestive health. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic, strong enough to cleanse, gentle enough to use every day. Pro-EM-1 is dairy, wheat, and soy-free, contains all natural and certified organic ingredients, contains no preservatives or animal products, supports a healthy digestive and immune system, supports weight loss, improves absorption of food nutrients, aids in controlling yeast infections, is never freeze-dried, and uses three groups of live, viable, beneficial microbes to cleanse and remove toxins. Order Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terraganics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, Terraganics.com. Or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Pro-EM-1, the raw probiotic.
This is Kurt Seven, the author of UFO Mysteries, and you're listening to the Paracast. Scott Allen Roberts, the book is The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim with Gene and Chris in the Paracast. You talk about the fall of these advanced beings. What are you referring to? Did we catch them at their own game? I, I, here, here's what I saw theologically, is that according to the Book of Enoch, these beings that were bequeathed by the Beneha Elohim, the Watchers, and, the, and the, the intermingling with human women, that it bequeathed the race that were known as giants. They were also known as being very corrupt, and that it was them that corrupted mankind. They brought some great wickedness to mankind. And this is the thing. In the Genesis passage, when God is talking about, this is where I talk about uh, uh, the encoded words and the encoded subtexts. What we learned about Noah and the ark was God was disappointed with the wickedness of man, so he chose to destroy all of mankind with a great flood, and he chose the one righteous man and his family to build an ark and house the animals and so on. We know the story from there. What you've got when you start digging into the Hebrew and relate it to the story of the Nephilim, you find out that it is a God that is angry with the race that has been created, and he is going to wipe out that race, and all of humanity was corrupted and became wicked because of their deeds, and there was not a single family that was pure-blooded human anymore other than Noah's family. When it says in the English, and God said that Noah was a righteous man and upstanding in all his ways, in the Hebrew, it says he was a pure-blooded man, pure in all his generations. And you say, now, wait a minute. What is that, that sounds racial mean? to me. It does sound racial. Sure. God, is a, God is one of the biggest racists, if you will, in the Bible. You know, well, look at his chosen people. Look at the way he did things with his people. Look at how he had people wipe other people out. You even go to King David. You know, you're talking thousands of years later. David goes into villages and wipes them out in the name of God and to cover his ass. And so... Um, uh, well, that's been going on ever since, too. Yeah, it has. And that's, this is one interesting thing about David, I say. You look at this guy, and this is Goliath comes into this, by the way, and talking about the Nephilim. Uh, David, you got to remember, look at your extreme uh, Middle Eastern uh, despots nowadays and how they act and how their people are treated and so on, the ruling classes. Take that back a few thousand years before you had what we refer to as modern civilization and the temperance of, of modern society on them and modern cultures and mores. Uh, you've got in King David a guy that was, I read between the texts of that, and this guy was, was not a nice man. And uh, even though the Bible calls him the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he did some pretty dastardly things. He committed genocide, and uh, well, genocide would be a race. He committed absolute wiped out certain villages and towns to cover his tracks. And that was the only reason he did it. He was a murderer and all these things. But it starts with that story of David and Goliath. And Goliath is just, he's even referred to in, in other parts of the, of, of the Old Testament. Goliath and his three brothers who lived in Gath in, the, in the, the Philistine territory, it said that they were the children of Anak, the Nephilim. Boy, I'll tell you, if uh, David was alive today, um, he's not the kind of guy that you'd want over trying to negotiate a peaceful settlement between the Palestinians and the Israelis. No, as a matter of fact, there's a passage where it says David, when he's running from the wrath of King Saul, he leaves with nothing but the clothes on his back, and he comes to the, the town of Nob, where 
the high priests and the, the priestly caste lived. And it said, and the high priest Abimelech ran out to meet David and fell to his knees in fear and said, with his head bowed, his hands up, said, what do you have to do with us, David, son of Jesse? And he's afraid of David. And David says, get up. He says, I need the sword of Goliath that's been in your keeping, and so on, you know, the story. This guy was afraid of David. He was the captain of the king's bodyguard, and he was known to be anointed by the prophet of Israel to be the next king. And this guy was nobody to trifle with. Uh, this was a guy who, he, 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 you almost see the mob, in a way. There was a story where there's this rich guy, uh, Nabal, I think was his name, and he had this gorgeous wife, Abigail. And uh, David and his men would protect his sheep and then he'd come to get food for his men in payment, and he says, I never hired you. And so they're going to kill Nabal and wipe out his whole family. I mean, what does that sound like? Hey, you got a nice little shop here on the strip. Uh, we want our $1,000 a month, or we'll shut you down. <laughs> okay, this I is mean, the early mafia. This is the early version <laughs> of the mafia, huh? <laughs> it was. Oy vey. So, yeah, oy vey. Um, uh, but this, this is the story of these – and, and by mentioning of this – I'm trying to also illustrate the point that there is so much subtext to what we read in the Scripture, you got to dig and look between the lines to find the real stories. Uh, ever since I was uh, quite young uh, in reading the Bible, are these really interesting references to, to the, the lifespans of people like Methuselah and Enoch and, yeah. and some of the uh, Old Testament, I guess, founding fathers, if you will? Is there a possibility that some sort of genetic manipula manipulation allowed for these incredible lifespans of hundreds of years? Uh, you would think that a mention like that, you know, it, it's just to me, it's it's so casual the way the way these uh, uh, beings are mentioned in terms of their lifespans. Uh, what do, what are we to make of that? Well, there, we had a version of that that was taught in our seminary. Uh, and it had to do with creation and the flood. But if you'll notice something, the first mention of the lifespan of mankind being decreased was in between the verses that talk about the Nephilim and the beginning of the Noah story. There's two little verses in there. It talks about the Nephilim and all that, then it says, and God's spirit would not strive with man forever, for his years will now be 120 years. And it's whoever's writing about this whole event is talking about the reduction of the lifespan. Now, some of the, your creationist scholars, and when they're talking about the flood, uh, we were talking earlier about how did this happen? You know, what were some of the geological things? Some of the things that they surmise, and it's based on some of their geological studies, and I think of guys like Edmund Morris, you know, uh, I think Edmund was his first name, big creation theorist out there. But he writes about the lifespan of, of human beings being greater because there was this UV protection, so to speak. Uh, he said before the flood, the antediluvial world, he said the, he bases it on the verse that says the windows of heaven were cracked open and came crashing down. He talks about there being a vapor canopy that covered the earth at the time. And that this was, it's almost like you would go out any given day, and it was always hot and humid and hazy. You'd never really see the blue sky. You could see the hazy sun. And this canopy blocked the UV rays and therefore allowed men to live longer. And at the flood, that was broken down. For the first time after the flood, they saw a blue sky. This is the theory that they put forward, and they base it on their facts, which I don't know all their facts, but this is, this is the theory they put forward. So I happen to think that the Nephilim had been with mankind from the time of the Garden of Eden. 
And that whole we talked about, I alluded to the impregnation of Eve by Nakash, the serpent. Um, Nakash being the bright, shining one. I believe Cain, one of the twins of, of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, I believe Cain was the first of the Nephilim. And that that carried on all throughout all the way up until the time of the flood, and so the earth was populated with these beings. And you don't see any of these great lifespans after the flood. They all took place before the flood. They ended at the flood, and there's even that mention, man will now be 120 years, will be the max life lifespan. Well, and another, interest, got, another yeah. interesting thing, Scotty, that I want to I bring up too, and, and I think your, your observation on that is, is interesting. There's, there's a couple of things. One is, if Adam and Eve were, were the first humans uh, and they begot, uh, you know, a family, you would have to have some uh, serious incestuous uh, activity going on in order to populate oh, yeah. the earth. So, so to, to bring in a, 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 some sort of other genetic strain into the picture would make sense. And, well, uh, I that, think there's a oh, – go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Say, you know, that kind of leads uh, some credence to the uh, – to the idea of outside genetic uh, influence. Well, uh, I, I wrote a, a chapter in uh, New Page Books, uh, uh, Lost Civilizations and Mysteries of the Past. It was an anthology book with about a dozen or so authors, and I was one of them, and I wrote on Cain and the other people. And uh, it's an interesting story. You've got Cain and Abel, and it's interesting that that uh, God at the curse, uh, he says to the serpent, there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the man, or the, the seed of humans. And what you've got then, the next story is about Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel, uh, you know, Cain was a tiller of the ground, and he offered up the first fruits of all of his vegetables and his crops and burned them as a sacrifice. And then there was Abel, who was a, a shepherd, and he, he offered up the blood sacrifice. Therefore, God accepted his sacrifice. There was something about the blood being shed. And uh, Cain was jealous, so he murders his brother. And this is the story that we're given. I thought it was very interesting in this, this whole text. It's either it was something that happened and we just don't know about it, or it was omitted for a reason, or it didn't happen. You see, all these conversations that God has with Cain, Tell you what, we have more conversations coming up with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, Ted Anderson announcing a great way to listen to radio on the telephone. By calling 760-569-7700, you'll be hearing GCNlive.com programs in seconds. Come to GCNlive.com, find your favorite host's dedicated phone number, and hear them 24-7. You heard me right, every show has a dedicated phone number. Stop by GCNlive.com and bookmark their number today. And again, that's 760-569-7700. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit and carding to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237.
Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg. With Gene and Chris, you're in the Paracast with Scott Allen Roberts, and we're trying to talk about these conversations they had with the creature they perceived to be God. So we assume, of course, E.T. was multilingual, but then... I guess the ultimate question here in our final few portions of the show is trying to identify who or what these creatures might have been. Were they E.T., divine beings? We'd assume they'd be divine beings based on our state of civilization way back then. Well, uh, th- that's certainly how ancient man perceived them, at least the, re- the records we had in religious historical accounts, like, like the book of Genesis. I find uh, where we left off, I was talking about Cain and all these conversations God had with him. Right, he of course. warns Cain. Uh, then uh, when Cain murders his brother, he talks him the famous question, because am I my brother's keeper? He says, he says you're going to cast me out, you're going to exile me. He says, how do I know if I go out there that people who find me won't kill me? And uh, the big question is, okay, let's see, there's Adam, there's Eve. The, the Hebrew genealogies were pretty meticulous. There's nobody else mentioned except Cain and Abel. And now there's a chicken scratch through Abel. So you got these three people, according to the text, and then it says Cain leaves and he, he impregnates his wife and bears a child, names him Enoch. Not the Enoch of the Book of Enoch. This is several generations earlier. And then he builds a city and names the city after Enoch, which, by the way, the etymology of the old words by the way, Enoch, if you, if you look at it through the, the filter of the ancient language, the E becomes an I, the N becomes an R sound I. There's no logic to it. I don't know why it works that way, but that's what it did. It, it, basically, the word Enoch is the word Iraq or Uruk. And uh, so the, there's a city, Uruk, in Iraq today that actually, by definition, over the centuries has come to mean the original city. So they think this is the city that Cain built in the Mesopotamian Valley there in, in Iraq. But uh, all of these, uh, do, how, how do we know who was interacting with Cain at that time? We don't. You brought up a, an interesting point a while ago. Were, the, were there two factions that were dealing with humanity? We don't know that for sure. But what we do know, what we have called the war in heaven, uh, Lucifer's fall and things like that, and the, just the good versus evil, those all seem like such, such simplistic ways of describing something. That's a religious way of describing something, but there was history to it as well, as we've already determined. So were they dealing with God? Were they dealing with Lucifer or Satan or angels or demons, or were they dealing with different factions of extraterrestrial beings, non-human entities? We don't know for sure. What we do know is that they seem to be set up at odds against each other. And the bloodlines from Eden, when God curses the serpent and says there will be this enmity, this conflict constantly between the seed of the serpent and the seed of humans. This sets up why you have all the genealogy. You know those all those long, boring chapters of genealogies in the Old Testament? Uh, where, you know, Methuselah begat Ahab and Ahab begat so on in and there. so on. <laughs> Lots of begats. In the Hebrew tradition, all these genealogies were taken through the firstborn sons of every family. And, that's, and they might have skipped a generation here or there, but sometimes father was called grandfather, so on and so forth. But you got all these genealogies set up. When you get to King David, you finally trace his genealogy back to Adam, but they don't take it traditionally through the firstborn, Cain. They take it through Abel, the secondborn. You go, huh, why did they do that? Then you get to... Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now you're talking about New Testament theology. Let's presuppose 
for the sake of this, this conversation, the argument that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed, or Yeshua bar Yashaf, the son of Joseph, he is indeed the Messiah. Well, what his followers did in the Gospels, they trace Mary's family back to David, because they had to establish that Jesus was of the line of David. That was one of the, the post-Davidic prophecies of the Christ, is that he would sprout from the royal line of David. And then they traced David again back to Adam through the lesser-born Abel. Now, why did they do this? Why did they break tradition and trace him to the lesser-born? I think there's a reason for that, and it's the whole bloodline issue. In the Hebrew way of thinking, Messiah meant kinsman redeemer. It was a redeemer for mankind that had to come from one of us. He had to be full human blood. There's that whole theology. You hear it at Christmas time in church. He was one of us. You know, we hear all that stuff about that. That's a that's a ancient Hebrew theology based on the kinsman redeemer. Now, why did they trace his line back to Abel instead of Cain? Because Cain was not of the pure human blood. And Noah was traced back to Abel, to Adam, because Noah was the only righteous, quote-unquote, the only pure-blooded man, pure in all his generations, not tainted by the blood of Nikosh or the blood of this other race. And so there was this distinction, and that's why God, even in the garden, said there will be enmity between the seed of the servant and the seed of the humans. Uh, there is a dual bloodline that existed. And the Messiah, the kinsman redeemer, that whole theology of the kinsman redeemer was built that it had to come from the pure bloodline. And this is why Abel is mentioned. But it's never explained in the passages. <laughs> David Icke's been trying to explain oh. it and, and talk David about Icke. reptilian bloodlines and stuff. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my follow-up book to this book is, uh, I'm working on it's tentatively entitled The, the Reptilian Enigma. And I subtitled it, it's all going to get changed, I'm sure, but I subtitled it The... Uh, pervasive presence of the serpent in human history, religion, and alien mythos. Now, I think David Icke, and I mention him in my book, I don't like David Icke, personally. I, D David Icke, to me, is, is an anti-Semite. Uh, he is somebody that promotes racism, as veiled as it may be. But he is no different, and pardon me for saying this, I see him no different. He's, he's a neo-Nazi as far as I'm concerned. He's saying the same things they said in the, in the final solution under the Third Reich. There is a race that is responsible for all the ills and woes of mankind, and David Icke will put forward the same idea. Now, maybe I'll have a beer someday with David Icke, and he'll correct me, but this is what it looks like on the surface. You go to his website, and these are the things he teaches. He fills stadiums. I think David Icke is somebody who has taken this theory and maybe started with something that was pretty cool. You know, he had an idea there, and it worked, but it is now transformed Scotty, for him Scotty, let's, something. Go ahead. Scotty, one second here. In reference to David Icke, um, I think, what's the old adage? If you steal from one person, it's plagiarism. If you steal from a bunch of people, they call it research. I'm not sure. He, <laughs> exactly. there's, there's not many original ideas there. I I, I'm, I'm good friends with his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife. Uh, she's actually a very dear friend of mine, and, and she kind of made me go down and, and watch his eight-hour presentation uh, a couple years back in Phoenix. And Lucky of course, you. I had a, wait, I had a front-row seat. I had to wear my sunglasses so he couldn't tell I was sleeping. Uh, but he spent the whole first four hours admonishing everybody uh, for, for you know, the, we're responsible for creating our own reality and the quality of our existence is all self-determined. Basically the and, same story. Which, which sounds great. But then he spent the, the next four hours after I'd left scaring the bejesus out of everybody with all this reptoid talk. So 
I'll tell you what, Chris, I would never stand eight hours for anything. You know, I don't see how that could happen. I wouldn't stand for eight hours of meat. You you know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and I sat once back when I think it was four or five was coming out. The number five was coming out, and they had this thing called Sit Long and Prosper, and you could go to your local theater that sponsored it and watch the first four Star Trek movies. That was eight hours. I love Star Trek. By the time I was through the third movie, I'm like scratching my ass and going, man, I'm hungry. Uh, and then you say, I'm just going to watch Star Wars movies after this. That's all. <laughs> you know, gave up on Star Trek. No, I couldn't watch any of these movie festivals. Now, exception here, some of these old movie serials back from the 40s, like, for oh, example, Captain Marvel with Tom Tyler. Now, I, I could watch that, series. which is like two and a half, three hours if you watch the entire 15 chapters or so or 13 chapters. Right. I could sit through them. Okay, I've done that with a few of those movie serials. But actually going through a movie festival, after the first couple of movies, I'm gone. I once hosted at my house a few years ago uh, the complete let's, – let's all get together. I got about 12 people came over. I had a, I had a bar in the house with a big, big TV, and we watched all three of Lord of the Rings extended plays. And we Forget had it. lunch and dinner and all of that. It was fun. We had a good time. But that's a long time to sit on your butt and listen to anything. And by the way, Tolkien, by the way, I think had a handle beneath the subtext of his fictional stories on stuff that was going on. And you know what? I'm going to ask you about that in our next segment. Scott Allen Roberts brings up Tolkien on, on our show this week. Tolkien, and we've got to explore this with Gene and Chris because you're in the Paracast. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items. And entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast jumbo tote bag, all sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour. Introducing a diabetes breakthrough, an easy, natural, organic way to bring relief to diabetics. Introducing MDS Forte, a concentrated super strength extract formulated for those who are looking for relief. What can MDS Forte do for you? MDS Forte reduces glucose levels safely and effectively, reduces cholesterol and triglyceride levels, increases HDL or good cholesterol while reducing LDL or bad cholesterol. MDS Forte reduces A1C, improves eyesight and circulation to the limbs, and helps with weight loss. Is non-toxic, caffeine-free, 100% natural, 100% organic, and comes with a 100% money back guarantee waiting for the side effects disclaimers with mds forte there are none order a 25-day treatment of mds forte by calling 213-405-5355 213-405-5355 or visit bestbloodsupport.com that's bestbloodsupport.com for mds forte a diabetes breakthrough 
What if pain could be reduced, ailments could be alleviated, physical and mental stress could be eased, and blood circulation increased, all by simply lying down? Introducing the original Biomat. The Biomat is an FDA-registered medical device that combines deep-penetrating infrared space-age technology and revitalizing negative ions with the incredible healing power of amethyst crystals. A Biomat can boost your immune system, relieve pain and stiffness, reduce stress and fatigue, and assist in detoxifying your body. Join the thousands of people reporting relief from chronic pain, fibromyalgia, arthritis, sports injuries, insomnia, and much more. Each Biomat comes with a lifetime trade-in and three-year warranty. Learn more at Bio dash mats.com spelled b-i-o dash m-a-t-s dot com or call 360-944-8692 that's 360-944-8692 visit bio-mats.com today and enhance your life with a biomat Folks, Iran and the Mideast nuclear mess is already ballooning our gas prices. Whether you're struggling with food costs, which are being blown up by gas costs now, or know that when the Mideast showdown explodes, whatever food supply you have is all you'll get because of huge panic demand. eFoods Direct Family Packs are the answer. Now the most affordable best food is saving you up to 50% compared to other poor quality food companies. The new Alex Jones Quick Fix Family Pack save you so much money, the savings from eating this food will actually help you pay your other bills. No matter what effect the Mideast crisis or the crashing economy have, you'll have food as delicious tonight as 25 years from now. Order now for 50% savings and free shipping on these affordable family packs. Call 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. Call 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out at iTunes. With Gene, with Chris on the Paracast, with Scott Allen Roberts, and you raised the name of a famous fantasy fiction writer. He had his hands on something there. He was saying something think, other than just enjoyable fiction. I think he had his mind wrapped around something. And let me preface it by saying this. One thing you'll find when you crack open the real small story of the Nephilim, you find out it is a huge story. It is all-encompassing. This is a story that when you go through the theological line through the Hebrew Scripture, you will find this is a huge story encompassing all of mankind and all of mankind's events. You bring David Icke into the picture, and you find that he has taken off on that in a totally different trail, sourcing in the same stuff, and it's affecting all of humanity. You look at Tolkien. He wrote a book about orcs and humans and elves, and he was talking about the third age of man and all of these things. If you start really digging apart some of his stuff, you'll find that he was latched into some pretty deep mythology sources back in all of this Nephilim stuff. First time I ever really noticed it was there's two things in particular, the elven folk, and then there was the uh, calling up of the demonic armies, the orcs and so on. There's a legend 
and I think it even goes into this, the Freemasons. And I'm not talking about the Freemasons now, but the Freemasons talk about, who was it, Hiram, who was supposed to be the guy who built, architected uh, the first temple. Abeth. Yes. They say that Solomon had a ring, and that this ring was something that gave him power over the demonic forces to come, and he could call the demonic forces, the evil forces, to do his bidding. Scotty, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who's done quite a bit of research into this whole scenario, would argue with the demonic tag that you're placing on these sure. entities. She, she argues for the interpretation of these forces being the jinn, which the I, I find very compelling. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, and, and that's, that is a hot topic right there, too. You know, this is something we're only starting to resurface these stories of the jinn. I believe that uh, Tolkien, when he was writing, knew this stuff, and he incorporated it into all his writings. You look at the elven folk and the way they are described in his writing. The Tuatha Dé Danann I mentioned earlier, when they were the, the Celtic people's version of the watchers that came down, the kings from heaven, the bright, shining ones, tall, elegant, bright, shining king. And they became known as the elven folk who receded into the hollow hills. El, the word El, I'm sorry, there is a, there's a direct correlation to Elohim, El, the name of God. El that's used at the, as the suffix to all the great archangels, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, all these different Azazel, all these angels bore the name of God at the ends of their names. The elven folk the same. I think uh, uh, Tolkien, this is one, <laughs> pardon the pun, one bright shining example of him extrapolating that information over into his fictional stories. And we all know he was using those books to, to really put out his poetry and things like that and all the songs he'd write and the, ling- the linguistics he would study. But his whole sub-basis to the whole thing was all these theories of these cultures that existed pre-Adamic culture, pre-Biblical culture, but they all link into all these different beings. So it, it hit our fictions in different ways. Because it's out there. It's there and can't be denied. Well, I, you know, again, uh, Scotty, I think that there's a, a, a lot of work that you just can't really do. I mean, you can only go so far with this material right. because of its antiquity. I think that this is, it's very entertaining when someone like a, a Zechariah Sitchin uh, gets involved and starts spinning it off in one direction, and David Icke, if you're entertained by fear-based stuff, spinning it off in another right. direction. But the bottom line is, unless we occasionally will see, you know, these these archaeological finds that are gradually pushing back the earliest versions of these stories. But so many people were involved in editing and writing the Bible. I, I think I read an article once that they've estimated that upwards of 60-some people probably wrote the Bible. Right. Unless you have a very strict oral tradition, as you find in in, uh, many indigenous cultures, all this stuff is subject to interpretation and obviously has been twisted, folded, mutilated, and spindled through time. So you go around and around in circles with this stuff, but there are really tantalizing indications that we interacted at some point with a non-human intelligence that was uh, exalted in the eyes of uh, us lowly humans. And uh, you you can't deny that something happened. It's defining what that something is. Sad to say, it really is, and we've said it before in this conversation. A lot of it is based on what your starting point is as to what you believe about these things, and then breaking free of that starting point if you find something is different than what you believed. My view of God has changed immensely just in the writing of this book because I saw God in a very different way than I understood him through all the theology I learned. He was scary back in the Old Testament days, boy, the wrathful God. When he got angry, it was like, oh boy, duck and cover, here it comes. He wasn't Morgan Freeman. He wasn't George Burns. (laughs) Yes, yes. I think it's interesting about God that you find, now again, here's Moses, 
this guy who I think was establishing his leadership over Israel, and his background was to become the pharaoh god of Egypt, but instead he became the pharaoh god of Israel. You see all these things he writes about God. You see him changing God's mind. God was really pissed off because the people were worshiping the golden calf, and oh, I'm going to destroy all these people, and I'm going to start it all over in you, Moses. And Moses, oh no, in all humility, no, God, you can't do that. You know why? You'd be breaking your word because you promised this to Abraham and his seed. And it says, and God repented of the evil that he was going to do because Moses, a man, convinced him that he was doing the wrong thing. What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture is you've got the all-knowing, almighty, omnipotent, uh, omniscient God suddenly having a guy change his mind. Yeah, scratching his beard. Moses was just a guy. When you boil it down, he was a guy, and he had motivations and ambitions like anybody else. I also found it very interesting in the writings of Moses. It's right there in the book of Numbers when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and it says, and Moses set up his tent outside the camp because he was the leader. Moses is the guy who wrote this, and it says, Moses, and God would come down in the form of a cloud and settle on Moses' tent. And Moses would talk to God, commune with God face to face as a man talks to his friend. But then nine verses later in the same chapter, you got God saying, and no man can see my face and live. Moses wrote this. What was Moses writing? Yeah, yeah. little schizoid. I'm more than a guy. I I'm think he was man. in need of an editor to have right. plot concerns. Consistency. You know, we have Moses continuity people in motion pictures, by the way. You switch scenes and the clothing can't change. Sometimes it does. You see these silly <laughs> errors where suddenly somebody is wearing totally different clothing or the right. car that was wrecked in the previous scene is now fixed again. But Moses couldn't have done that, could he? Now, is that a contradiction in Scripture? Some people go, oh, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. I don't think it's a contradiction at all. I think the subtext there, Moses, who wrote the chapter in the first place, was establishing that I am not just a man. I am the Pharaoh God of Israel. Wasn't that his his punishment at the end of his days? Scotty, if he was the Pharaoh God of Israel, I I never could figure out how the Israelites could wander around for 40 years in the Sinai, which is not a very big place. I mean, boy, he he may have been godlike or something, but he sure needed a GPS unit or a good navigator. You know, and why didn't those people say, screw you, I'm going over there, you know, where there's grass. This is something, too, I always wondered about. If you or I, ask yourself this question, if I stood there on the shore of the Red Sea, and I saw the waters miraculously part, and there's dry ground, and I cross, and I'm looking at whales swimming in the walls next to me, and I get to the other side, and Pharaoh's army chases me, and God miraculously closes it on Pharaoh's army. If I saw that one event in my whole life, would I ever think that God wasn't who he said he was? We're talking to Scott Allen Roberts. You're with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs. Convert from so many 
formats I can't even list them. Download now to see if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E-Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E-Soft.com. Have you ever seen a U.S. postage stamp featuring Abraham Lincoln, Ben Franklin, or George Washington? If you're into stamp collecting, you know it's a fun, affordable hobby. America's leading stamp dealer is the Mystic Stamp Company, and they want you to have their free 140-page color catalog. Go to mysticstampad.com, the website of the Mystic Stamp Company, serving stamp collectors since 1923. Mystic Stamp is well-known in the industry for its experience, superior customer service, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Go to M-Y-S-T-I-C Stamp. AD.com to request your free 140-page U.S. stamp color catalog packed with collecting tips, special offers, color photos, and over 4,600 available stamps. Call 800-433-7811 or go to mysticstampad.com. That's 800-433-7811 and ask for your free U.S. stamp catalog or mysticstampad.com. Mystic Stamp Company, America's leading stamp dealer. Iodine protection packs from HempUSA.org are now in stock for immediate delivery worldwide. Our iodine protection packs include micro plant powder, green life kelp, red palm oil, and our clear roll-on iodine that will feed the body the iodine it needs. All iodine protection packs are in stock, save you money, and ship for free in all 50 states. Visit HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. HempUSA.org has a revolutionary wonder food for detoxing the body and rebuilding the immune system. Microplant powder can help unclog arteries and soften heart valves while removing heavy metals, virus, fungus, bacteria, and parasites. Plus, it cleans and purifies the blood, lungs, stomach, and colon. Keep your body clean with microplant powder. Visit us at HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. What is the most abundant resource on Earth? Water. It's essential for sustaining life, but it's not always the most available. When disaster strikes, water quickly vanishes from store shelves, like it did during 9-11, Katrina, Japan, and in Joplin. Three days without water and your body begins to shut down. Don't risk being without an abundant supply of water when the next disaster hits. Get a FlowJack hand well pump. The affordable FlowJack drops right into almost any well and is easy to install without having to remove the existing pump, giving you immediate access to plenty of cool, clean water. You could risk your family's health on a limited supply of stored water, or you could be prepared with the reliable, affordable FlowJack backup hand pump kit. Delivered to your door for only $3.99 complete. See how it works at FlowJack.com. Spelled F-L-O-J-A-K.com. Be sure to spell F-L-O-J-A-K.com or call 855-4-FLOJACK. That's 855-435-6525. Proudly made in America. FlowJack hand well pumps. Peace of mind in a box. This is Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, and I'm here to say a good word or two about the Paracast, which I believe is the gold standard of paranormal radio. Listen to it if you can. Scott Allen Roberts joining us. We're trying to look at what was seen in ancient times with Gene and Chris and the Paracast 
And this raises always the big question here. So we have all this literature, we have the Bible, we have the Koran, we have all these sacred texts around the world talking of interactions with higher beings. So how do we find a focus on this? How do we ever, or is it even possible, prove this one way or the other? And you have to wonder, all this interaction took place in ancient times, and we still have UFOs and strange things happening now, but the interaction doesn't seem to be quite as blatant. So I guess the question would be, did they just set us loose and leave, or did they just come back and watch us? Why did it all change? I look at it this way. I look at the life of Abraham in the Old Testament. We think, wow, what a great patriarch. He had all these interactions with God. And yet you only find that he had, he had two. And he was 100 years old when they started. He saw God, and God told him to go to the land of Canaan. Then he wrestled with, uh, uh, or it was Jacob that wrestled with God. So I look at this and I go, here's a guy that we hold out to be this great patriarch, this great man of God. And he had one five-minute experience in a dream that governed the rest of his life. I think that's what we have to do with this stuff. Is say, it seems like it's more subtle nowadays, but all through history, don't we have some of the same things that we see that we can, we can point to that? You look at the, the stories of Incubus and Succubus. You look at the stories of especially the last generation of, uh, of uh, alien abductions, impregnations, and things like that that have gone on. Is this any different? than what supposedly happened back when the Watchers descended down. Was it just more overt back then? These beings came in and they physically, did they announce themselves, hey, I am a son of God and I've come to impregnate you. How did they do this? We don't know how they carried out their task. It could be still happening today. An interesting thing in the Genesis passage where it talks about God is going to wipe out this race, but it also says right there, and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And then you see several accounts in the Old Testament where it talks about, oh, we can't do this because those are the children of Anak, the children of the Nephilim. So it was either an ineffectual judgment. God passes this whole big watery judgment on mankind, wipes them all out, and uh, oops, it didn't do what I wanted it to do because they're still here. Scotty, the book of Jubilees that, that talks about that uh, 10% of the offspring of the Nephilim, I guess, evidently survived, but uh, yes. disembodied, if I remember correctly. Well, here's an interesting passage in, in Enoch, and this is a portion I hit in my book because of some of the, the, the paranormal research I've done over the years. Um, there's this whole thing about demonology. Oh, my God. If I had a nickel for every time somebody approached me and said, I'm a psychic, I'd, have, uh, I'd already have a small Caribbean island that I'd be retired to. And then if I had another nickel for every time somebody said, I'm a demonologist. You know, I'd, I'd buy another island. Uh, you know, I, there's this whole armchair demonology thing out there, but the whole demonology craze has hit in the last few years. I think with the advent of the pop culture of all the ghost hunting stuff, not to mention any names, but I think that this has brought on this stuff, and people approach it so cavalierly. Enoch talks about demons. Now, what do we say demons are by definition, at least by Roman Catholic theology or Christian theology? They're the fallen angels. That's what we talk about. Now, it's interesting, in Enoch, after he gives all this information about the Watchers and the Nephilim and so on, he says, now the spirits, the ghosts of the Nephilim who perished in the flood, he said, they are the ones that 
were born on the earth, and their spirits will remain on earth. They corrupted mankind and tormented mankind while they were alive in the flesh, and they will continue throughout time to corrupt with their spirits. Mankind, sounds like the jinn to me. Sounds like the jinn, sounds like the demons, sounds like whatever you want to call it. I believe demonology roots back to the Nephilim. Mm. Okay, you know, a lot of beliefs here, but again, we have skeptics in our audience who are going to look at this and Absolutely. say, oh, okay, we're hearing another rant about ancient astronauts, and this is fine, these are nice stories, and maybe they are true. But yeah. well, you know how are we ever does. going to prove anything? You know what I think this does? It's like I say, it just adds another apple to the apple cart. Uh, all those skeptics out there who are skeptical of this kind of thing, start looking at the theology and say, there's theology that even talks about the very same thing in different, in different clothing. It's talking about this stuff. And you've got to start as a skeptic or a scientist or, or, or just an atheist or somebody who just doesn't want to believe this stuff or think it's all a bunch of hooey. You've got to start looking at it and say, wait a minute, there's so much information out there that bolsters the case. That And yes, we can't prove it. We can't definitively say it was this, this uh, chrome-colored spaceship that came down and people got off and started having sex with human women. We can't prove that. But what we can prove is that the stories exist, and they exist in all these different cultures and all these different forms. And that says to me, there's, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Come on. There had to be some uh, kind of influence. You couldn't have cultures around the world getting information with various levels of interpretation from apparently the same source. Either that source exactly. came from a single set of yep. events that spread around the world, or there were simultaneous events amongst all these ancient cultures, which is also right. just as ridiculous, it seems. I had somebody ask me a couple of weeks ago, what is the, uh, they were talking to me about coming to an event and speaking about this. And, well, our event is all geared around the soul and spirit and all of this. And how would your book appeal to the soul? And I scratched my chin whiskers for a minute and said, it doesn't. What, I'm not trying to appeal to the soul, and I'm not trying to appeal to spirituality. I'm trying to dig into theology and say, there's a case to be made here for something. And that case looks like this. Um, it says this in the theology, but it sure looks a hell of a lot like this over here. Uh, my main message of this book is, is stop just regurgitating things you've been taught, whether it be religion, whether it be David Icke, whether it be your pastor, whether it be whoever. Don't regurgitate that and just accept it because, oh, that's a neat theory. I, I think that's the way it happened. I, I got a big problem with people saying, well, I feel it was this. Well, that's great. Feel all you want. But feelings do not equate to facts all the time. You know, like, it's like saying, you know, I had a horse lick my face once. It doesn't mean she was in love with me. Um, so the same You thing, have to you ask know, the horse. We'll have to basically <laughs> channel the horse, communicate with that horse and say, were you in love with let's Scotty? See, let's see. Uh, mm, mm, oh, yeah, yeah. She's loving okay. me. I can hear it right she now. I hear it in her voice. Can't you hear it? Lovey-dovey. Yeah, well, I, I, I just I keep saying, I sound like a broken record on this show, that people have to do their own research. You can't Absolutely. let the culture, your culture is not your friend, number one, and, and you shouldn't let your culture be the, be the, the single source for, your, for your, your research and your belief system. I, I've also found it very interesting that, that quantum physicists go to church or go to, go to temple. Yeah. Uh, you know, sure. I, I think it's, there's a certain point that... You have to suspend your disbelief, uh, and, and, and you, the only way you can do that is by being up to speed in these areas and really doing your own research. 
And I'll tell you, I think some of it might might hail back to the fear of letting go of what you were taught. Uh, for me, when I say my views of God have changed, I mean that. But I still have the tendrils of my old faith that come up and grab me and say, oh, you're backsliding. Oh, you're a reprobate. You're a heretic. Oh, you're going to hell now. You know, all those things come up. <laughs> you'll you'll and, get over it. And did you ever think here that maybe what we consider to be visits or interactions with God have nothing to do with it, and there is a God out there, and maybe he, she, or it, they're just laughing at the foolish humans who believe this stuff? Well, my, my, when I said my view of God changed, let me, let me answer it this way. I used to see a God, the God of love, the God that's waiting with open arms for you, the God that does this and does that. I think God gives a hill of beans about human beings. Now, that uh, almost goes back to bad. something John Keel said a long time ago. And we'll get into what John Keel said about his vision of God, kind of expressed in his theories about ultra-terrestrials, about computerized beings that run the universe, but unfortunately they're not always sane in the way we'd regard as sane. God Scott, is crazy. Scott Allen Roberts joining us with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. G-C-N. Great talk radio starts here. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at webtv.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Attention, information in this one-minute message could save your life. Don't wait for the next emergency to happen. Act now to be prepared. Now, more than ever, civilians and communities must communicate with family, friends, and neighbors in the event of civil unrest, natural disasters, or other emergencies. That's why there's CivilDispatch.com. CivilDispatch.com is a universal system that can be used for a wide array of urgent notification alerts. Weather emergencies, civil unrest, emergency responders, amber alerts, school or business closings, any need-to-know situation. CivilDispatch.com is an emergency dispatch communication system, allowing anyone to quickly and easily send and instantaneously track emergency email and text alert notifications. CivilDispatch.com gives you the power of enterprise alerting without the enterprise cost. Don't find yourself unprepared. Learn more and become a member at CivilDispatch.com. That's CivilDispatch.com. Civilian Emergency Dispatch System. Peace through preparedness. 
Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Don't forget, CrossbreedHolsters.com. In a coming-apart world, you need something to keep it tied together. That something is Atwood Rope, the highest quality rope made in the USA from exotic braids for military, rescue, arborists, shipyards, tow line, or boating. Quality rope at affordable prices you and your customers can depend on. Find a dealer or shop online at atwoodrope.net. Enter promo code RADIO to receive 100 feet of 550 paracord free with purchase. Atwood Rope, working to keep the world tied together. So you're a maker of something. Woodcrafts, fishing lures, glass designs, jewelry, purses, perfumes, goat's milk soap. Whatever it is, you made it here in America. Now you're eager for people to buy your products right here locally. Instead of buying competing products made on the other side of the world, right? Then you need to check out localmakers.com. Support America. Buy and sell locally at localmakers.com doesn't matter if you're a home-based business or a major manufacturer. Localmakers.com offers an easy way to connect with customers within your local community as well as across the U.S. simply by entering a zip code. And there's no cost to join. So if you're a maker who needs buyers, go to Localmakers.com and stock your products on one of our shelves. Localmakers.com. Promoting, preserving, and supporting your neighbor's manufacturing businesses. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast. Scott Allen Roberts joining us with Gene and Chris in the Paracast. So Chris said, well, what Keel said, that God is crazy. What do you think, Scott? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the old prophets of old and all these holy men over the, the millennia, it was always said that madmen were, were, had some connection to God. Now, it, it, is that because you look at the actions of God and you say, number one, if he's what theology, systematic theology taught us in, in, in evangelical Christianity, was that God is all-knowing, knows everything, but he does and acts these certain ways, already knowing what's going to happen. If I got up every day and knew everything that was going to happen, it's kind of like Groundhog Day, that movie. Did you ever see that? Yes. By the time he's at the end of 10,000 lives, they assumed, uh, uh, he is somebody who, who knew everything that was going to happen. Uh, and, and yet he went through the actions every day. If God knows everything is going to happen, I go, why do you even start it? You know, you know, you already knew what was going to happen. Um, is that the act of a, um, pardon me, is that the act of a madman? Is that the act of a mad scientist? Is that well, the isn't insanity somebody- the definition of doing the same thing over and over again and thinking that it's going to turn out differently? Right. I think, yeah, exactly. And uh, so far be it from me to say, I know more than God. Uh, I, I, I haven't thrown out the baby with the bathwater with any of this. I think God is there, and I think that there are things that exist. But I, I rather like the, uh, the words of Richard Feynman, the late Richard Feynman, uh, atheist, yes, scientist, 
um, I was listening to bits of a lecture of his, and he was talking about all these stories, these holy stories we have. And he was talking about the universe and the vastness of it. And he said, and he got almost impassioned about it. He said, for me, he says, these stories that, that, that says that God, in one of his forms, came here to this planet and manifested himself, he says, seems so colloquial, so local in the vastness of this universe. And he said, I, for one, am comfortable feeling lost in the cosmos. And, and that did something for me, too, on top of all this, is that wow, in the vastness of everything that's out there, you know, if you go by Sagan, you remember Sagan's famous, which has been mocked over and over, the billions and billions of stars, you know, there's billions of stars in this, in our galaxy alone that could host billions of planets like ours. There's billions of galaxies like ours out there in the universe Conver uh, that also include, you know, you do your math on that, you end up with this astronomical infinite number. And to say that we are the only thing here, uh, hailing once again back to, 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 to Sagan's uh, book, uh, Contact, that's an awful lot of waste of space if we're the only ones here. And uh, so in tying that into this whole thing to say, if God created this here, what did he create somewhere else? Or if God does not exist at all, and he's a manifestation of our trying to figure it all out or put common sense to things, um, take this for example. You guys, uh, Chris, you, you've been uh, a paranormal investigator, correct? Correct. Um, so you know, you can experience something, and you see it, and everybody might 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 laugh at you at your story, but you're the one who saw it and you experienced it. You go, I know this happened. But 10 minutes when you're back outside having a smoke and you're going, is that what I really saw? You know, your mind already starts creating cover stories for what you experienced. Right. I, I always try to... Maybe as mankind, humanity, create these vast cover stories for what we experienced or find ways to explain them. Uh, I, I, I used an example of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary comes to him and says, I'm pregnant, and it's with God's son. And you can see Joseph going, okay. And said he was going to put her away privately, uh, meaning uh, I love her enough, but man, the humiliation, the shame, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm, this is done, I'm not doing this. And then he has a dream. And God comes to him in a dream and says, don't put her away. That's God's son. And he accepts that. But you got to figure, he woke up in the morning and scratched his nuts and grabbed a cup of coffee and looked out at the rising sun and went, was that a dream or was that God? And, you know, he operated by faith after that. Well, that uh, almost goes the past, with the theory, Scotty, that maybe there's a lot of political correctness in these oh. sacred texts, that they're saying things in a certain way, knowing, well, we've got to frame it this way because we need to have this accepted by the populace. And if we right. say it another way or if we even tell them what really happened, well, it's kind of like that song, I Dig Rock and Roll Music. You know, if we really said it, the radio won't play it, so I've got to lay it or say it between the lines. So in this sense, they're right. doing the same thing which is they can't say what really happened. They had to frame it in a certain context. Well, I, I believe that's part of it as well. I think, well, doesn't the Apostle Paul, when he writes about uh, his experiences, and he talks about having been brought up into the third heaven and shown things that are forbidden for me to repeat, 
and so he doesn't repeat them. Um, and I was given this thorn in the flesh, he called it, to, to remind me daily that I'm not supposed to reveal this stuff. Now, was he just setting himself up as it wasn't true, and just like a lot of religious leaders that we see today, you know, um, God spoke to me last night. You know, is, is this what Paul was doing? Was he just another guy that, uh, or was, did he have a real message there? Did something happen to him? We'll never know. Uh, and the same thing with all of this stuff. What really happened with the whole, the, the gist of this whole conversation is we know something happened. It's evident in religion. It's evident in science. It's evident in history. It's evident in archaeology. But what we'll never know, at least up to this point, is what it really was. Um, but I tend to think this, and man, this flies in the face of my personal faith or my past personal faith. However you want to look at some guy talked about me as being an ex-Christian once. But I'm not an ex-Christian. I still believe the basic tenets of Christianity. I can't prove it. But all of this says to me, is it true that mankind created religion to explain the things in life? Why is the sky blue, Daddy? Well, uh, 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 God made it that way. You know, uh, we can get to the science of why the sky is blue, but we can't explain how it came into existence. Uh, and, and so we create cover stories for it. Is there a, I know one theory out there is that uh, uh, this, this race that impregnated humans, that tampered with our DNA, that interrupted our development, uh, that there was a cover story implanted in us. Now, is that just psychology, that our minds can't accept these things, or that our minds look for something else, or is there something there that's hidden? What do they say? We use, uh, what, one-eighth of our brain or one-twelfth of our brain in our lifetimes? Does that mean that there's something more there that's yet to be uncovered or something covered up? I don't know. All well, we I, can do I, I think, I think that number is uh, probably a, a lot smaller for a lot of people on the planet. I think they're lucky if they use one-hundredth of their brains. Uh, and it, it's interesting, in the New Testament, I think it's Peter that says, and in those days, he's talking about like the, that, that, that eternal, infinite something out there that's yet to come, and in those days, our minds will be opened. And that's all he says, it's an obscure little verse, and I think, theologically speaking, he's saying the same thing we are here. There's going to be a day where something's going to be opened up, and we're going to understand it, but we don't know. That would be nice. Tell us... Scott Allen Roberts, where can we find more of the things you do? And then I'd love to okay. talk about your artwork on another occasion and your design oh, you. work because that's just fabulous. And I want the to talk taps to you about and, that. and being the editor of the Taps magazine and, and uh, the obvious oh. uh, problems that the uh, ghost hunters are having, uh, not being able to come up with good material every week. Oh, boy. Y you know, um, I worked as uh, the editor in chief of Taps Paramag for about a little over a year, and I parted ways with them for my personal reasons, and I launched my own magazine. I'll tell you what, um, tell our listeners where they can find more of this. Intrepidmag.com. That is my magazine. That's my website. You can go there. You can go to scottallenroberts.com. That is my, uh, my portfolio website. It's linked up in, in my, in my uh, uh, Intrepid Mag site as well. Intrepid Magazine is something I launched to say, I want to get into these other things. I, when I came on board at TAPS, I was asked, what's your vision for the magazine to help pull it out of the, the hole it's in? And I gave a big bullet list. I said, I think we got to appeal more to, to more than just the pop culture of, of television ghost hunting. We've got to expand. There's an audience out there that couldn't give two rats bahookies about ghost hunting, but want to know metaphysics. They want to know science, fringe science, 
UFOs, things like that. Oh, oh that's great. Let's do that. And I love we'll to go. invite you to go to intrepidmag.com. And Chris, he has a site too, ourstrangeplanet.com. And if you go to thepowercast.com, you find everything we're doing. Scott Allen Roberts, thanks for joining us on the Powercast. Thanks for having me. The Powercast, featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. <laughs>